You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, Will. Hello, David. Hello, everybody out there, and welcome to Common Descent. This is episode 167. This episode's topic is geologic dating. This, I'm so excited to talk about it. <laughs> I love talking about this subject. This is a very foundational concept in the realm of paleontology and geology. We will be discussing in this episode, how do we know how old stuff is? When we find a fossil or a fossil site or a geologic formation, how do we go about determining how old that is? We'll talk about the various techniques that we use, how those techniques work, which means we're going to get to talk a little bit about physics and chemistry and things like that. Woo! I hope you're ready for some nuclear physics, because there's <laughs> going to be some nuclear physics in this episode. I am always ready. And then we'll talk about how we bring all those techniques together for a cohesive understanding of ages of things. In the history of our of our history, this like I said, this is one of those episodes like play tectonics or a, sort of a companion episode to this one, the geologic timescale episode. Yes, that is. This is a concept that underlies basically all the episodes that we have had elsewise in this podcast. So it'll be a fun uh, thing to get to. Yeah, no, I, I, it is. A huge topic. Yeah, it's a huge <laughs> topic, as as I'm sure uh, is evidenced by the time markers on this episode. <laughs> we don't have the full thing yet, but I'm sure I, I, we've done the discussion, and I know how long it was. This topic was also requested. The requesters for this episode are Eric, Jonathan, Jackie, Ben, and Quinn. Thank you for your wonderful suggestions. Excellent suggestion. Before we get into the stuff, a few announcements. First and foremost, as always, we have a Patreon, mm-hmm. and the subscriptions we receive on Patreon allow us to do the whole podcast. Big thanks, as always, to all of our patrons. If you join us on Patreon, there's bonus goodies that you can get, director's notes, bonus news episode, additional content, all sorts of neat stuff, including, at a certain level, you get your name shouted out on the podcast. This episode, we would like to welcome the following new patrons, Marcella. Nelio, Amanda, Paleotherium, Proxima Centauri, Stephanie, and welcome and happy birthday to Theo. Happy birthday. Thank you for the support. Welcome all. Welcome, everybody. Thank you for your support on Patreon. If you, dear listener, are not a patron, we encourage you to consider it. In fact, Right now is a great time to consider it because it's also Croc Month. Croc Month! It's June. It is officially Croc Month here on the Common Descent Podcast. We are going to be celebrating with Croc stuff all throughout the month. We will have a bonus episode coming out later this month, an interview with a certain Croc aficionado. Yeah. Uh, that's this guy right over here. I did that. I was the one talking. questions <laughs> uh, that were put together with help from our patrons. We will also have a Crocs episode coming up. That's next episode. Yeah. Before the end of the month. Very exciting. Over on our Discord, the Croc Chat channel is open only for the month of June. Hop in there and show your love for Crocs. Part of the top three best months of the podcast. (laughs) And we have, once again, our Crocs and Snakes tier is available on Patreon. June and July, Croc and Snake Month only 
if you subscribe at this tier on Patreon, your pledge contributes to donations we will be making later in the summer that go towards research and conservation efforts for crocs and snakes. Now is a great time to join the Patreon because you can support our science education efforts and help out our favorite reptile friends out in the world. So stay tuned, more Croc Month stuff to come, and then after that, Snake Month. <laughs> Speaking of Patreon, this is a, a small version of a big announcement. We have officially hit 500 patrons. Right? That's 500. awesome. Thank you all so much. Very exciting. We are going to do something special for that. We have some thoughts about what kind of... We might make some changes to Patreon. We might add some new stuff. But it is the beginning of Croc and Snake Month, so we're not going to do that right now. Yes. Later on in the summer, we will talk more about how we're going to respond and acknowledge <laughs> that we have hit a pretty big deal milestone on the Patreon. Yeah, so thank you, everyone. We This is so exciting. And one more thing to mention. June, here on the podcast is Croc Month, but more broadly, it's Pride Month. Yeah, the month just gets better and better. Happy Pride Month, everybody. Happy Pride. You know, every now and then on the podcast, we have the opportunity to use our platform to support causes that are important to us. And we hope everybody who wants to has a lovely Pride Month. But also, it's not the easiest time out there in the world to be a member of the LGBT community, particularly these days for trans folks. Yes. We know there are a lot of trans folks out there in the science community, in the science communication community, in our audience, our friends, our families, and just our general fellow human beings Mm -hmm. who are struggling these days in the face of lots of misinformation and discrimination and all sorts of unfortunate stuff. Yeah, some archaic legislation getting thrown around. So, in honor of Pride Month, we will be making a donation on behalf of the podcast to an organization called Trans Lifeline. This is an organization run by trans people, for trans people, all sorts of resources. We will put a link in the episode description if anybody is interested in checking it out, seeing what sort of stuff they do, learning about the issues that are being faced by this community these days, and maybe making a contribution yourself. Yeah, no, glad we can do something to to (laughs) help in whatever way we can. So happy June, happy Pride Month uh, to all of our listeners, our audience, our friends, our family, our colleagues, no matter where you find yourself on these beautiful spectra (laughs) of human gender, sex, and sexuality. We hope you have a lovely month and beyond. Yeah. And with all that having been said, let us move on from our announcements to the news. Every episode, we pick some news from the world of paleontology and related sciences and go over it and talk about it and give some updates. Will, start off the news, please. Happily, and to start off Croc Month, I have some Croc-related news. That is appropriate. This news is on some recent research looking at a specific behavior that is noted in some animals called visual perspective tracking, or gaze tracking, which is often noted as a key indicator for higher cognition. Mm. And this is when you see someone else looking at something else you can't see, but you still know they're looking at something. And you can use that to inform you yourself about the environment you're in. There is something over there that I can't see, but that person's looking at. Yes, and I can follow your gaze to figure out where it should be. This is something we don't see in all animals. And it is, like you said, a sign of, quote, intelligence. In other species. And very often uh, cooperative 
that yep. it is highly associated with uh, more social or at least gregarious behavior. Right. Dogs do this. I think they were the first. Ex- that, that, the, they were the example that I first learned mm-hmm. about this phenomenon. Yep. Yep. This research is by Claudia Zeitrog et al. in Science Advances, and we'll be linking to these in our blog post. And the article is a press release by Sci News. So taking someone else's visual perspective into account has been noted in multiple groups. Of course, we can do it. Other primates are known to do it, a number of birds and some canids. But it also has not been studied in many groups. Right. So that is not necessarily the only groups who do it. It's just some of the only ones we've noted it in thus far. So there's a lot of room for exploration on this topic. And part of the reason there's such interest is not only does it suggest a, a more complex problem solving or, or, you know, observational skills from a brain perspective, but that it is often considered one of the key aspects or a potentially important bit for advanced social behaviors. You need to be able to observe your fellow, you know, pack herd mates, whatever it is, and be able to attract their awareness of things mm-hmm. that may not be within your field of view. For this bit, they wanted to investigate it in archosaurs by comparing two groups, crocodilians, and I believe they were specifically using alligators, mm-hmm. and paleognaths, the group that includes things like ostriches, emus, rheas, the cassowary, and the tinamous, most of which are flightless, and famously this group branched off from other birds very early on. So they are often considered a more basal group, or that they share many features with what we think early ancestral birds likely had. And here it's useful because their brains have been noted to be fairly comparable to non-avian dinosaurs. Not exactly the same, but similar enough that it gives us at least a leaning of inclination for if we see it in them, it might have been present in some of those dinosaurs. So this is a classic case where we're looking at birds and crocs, the modern members of the archosaur family, to make inferences about ancestral and extinct archosaurs. Exactly. Which includes all the other dinosaurs. And crocodilians are handy because their brain is more similar to the brain cases of archosaur ancestors. The groups that would have come in, that would have come before archosaurs or before that split between crocs and dinosaurs. So if we see it in both, it was probably an archosaur feature. If we only see it in one, it was probably a feature that evolved after their split. And what they found is that the paleognaths do show this feature and the crocodilians did not. Oh, interesting. So the birds are following gazes, but the crocs don't. Now, interestingly, they said the alligators did not demonstrate it, except for that they could follow a gaze to a visible location. So if they could also see the thing, they would be able to follow the gaze, but they didn't seem to use it to inform themselves of things outside of their view. Gotcha. So... It sounded like maybe a partial aspect of it, but not the full visual perspective tracking. They didn't know there was something around the corner that that this other was looking at. Yeah. If there's Hmm. something that's out and about and I'm looking at it, they might follow to that thing as well. But they're not going to realize someone's looking down the hall at someone else. Right. This suggests that it originated in at least early birds. And that it happened after the split, so it is not necessarily, or this is not evidence that it is a archosaur-wide feature. They estimated that likely 60 million years ago, or more, paleognaths emerged 110 million years ago. So we could be 
seeing this feature go back a ways, which is notable because it either of these dates would mean that it likely predates the evolution of this feature in mammals. Oh, interesting. This, so, that they might have evolved this before our ancestors did. Yes, indeed. They did note that, you know, further research into mammals might find that it's more widespread and therefore might go further back. But even if that's the case, if it goes back into non-avian dinosaurs, then it probably still happened first in the dinosaur lineage. Due to the similarities between Pelignath brains and non-avian dinosaur brains, or at least some of them, there is the potential that we could have been seeing this in non-bird dinosaurs. But so far, that would have to be its own research. You know, that we don't have direct evidence. They did note that it was less likely to be present in the earliest dinosaurs, since those would, brains are starting to lean more similar to crocodilians in shape. Gotcha. More like those earlier archosaurs. Mm-hmm. And since we don't see it in them, it's likely something that would have come along somewhere along the line of the dinosaur evolution if it did happen before birds, not early in the emergence of dinosaurs. And they said it's not particularly surprising that we see this in earlier birds and potentially uh, their ancestors, since they are so well known for their highly, you know, their advanced visual system, while Early mammals are often thought to have been leading more nocturnal lifestyles. You know, we've talked about that reduction in our visual system that has been noted that there could be connections between those uh, differences in the visual systems and when we potentially are seeing this trait arise. It's really interesting to see evidence of this visual behavior in Early birds, but not crocs. Yeah. So often, if there is something that is a sort of earlier part of the bird family lineage feature, often we expect to see that that is sort of shared with crocs. It's also one of those things that is so difficult. We have to be so careful with mm-hmm. behavioral interpretations. It makes total sense to think that if these birds share general structures of the brain with dinosaurs with certain dinosaurs that we can study the brain case that is a totally reasonable thing to infer that maybe this was a shared feature and maybe not in those earlier dinosaurs but also i'd be super curious to know as we study this in more and more animals how widespread it is and is this something that shows up over and over and over again is it very easy to become convergent in different groups yeah or is it something that you can lose Mm -hmm. could it be that You know, maybe crocs have that sort of partial display of this behavior. Could be that they are sort of part way towards evolving that behavior. Could it be that that is a reduction of this behavior? Yes. That there weren't. It's always so interesting to try to sort of suss out the different possibilities when trying to interpret behavior from ancient things. And as they noted, that there's a lot of room to be had for this research. So like a lot of space, uh, a lot of things to look into because it's still fairly early on, uh, evidently. One thing they did also notice with the Pelignaths, they also showed a behavior called checking back, which is that when they saw a, a, you know, another individual looking at something and then went to try to look at it, but then didn't see anything that they would then check back and follow (laughs) the gaze again. So they do a double take. Yeah. Yeah. Did I, did I look in the right direction? Did I misinterpret where you were looking? And This previously had only been noted in us and other primates and ravens. Hmm. And so once again, we're unveiling that this behavior might be more widespread than we initially thought. 
It's in groups that you might not expect it to be, like the one that is often considered the more primitive quote-unquote birds. They seem to show this higher cognitive, you know, indicator as we like to use it. And they did make the point that this not only points out that the way we distinguish cognition is potentially, you know, some of those traits might be more widespread than we initially think. And the fact that we're finding it in more and more non-mammal groups, you know, more, uh, more birds here, that it is a good reminder that we have the habit of using mammals as the, as they called it, cognitive yardstick for <laughs> what it means to be intelligent, when really other animals would be just as potentially applicable to be that, to be measured, like, ravens would be perfectly fine for you to be measuring other animals against, but we default to mammals. So yeah, just an interesting uh, uh, look into this. I'd, I had not actually heard of this this behavior before. This I was hmm. learning about it here uh, and finding it in some primitive birds, but not uh, crocodilians, not the other archosaurs. Interesting. I wonder if this if there is the potential to look in other croc species. Yes. Now, could this be a species to species thing? Uh, and it, and if so, that would sort of change all of the sort of ancestral mm-hmm. conclusions that Absolutely. the research is coming to. Absolutely. I, I want to see tons more of this research because I think it's fascinating. Well, speaking of archosaurs, I've got a news here about pterosaurs. Ooh. Pterosaurs, the flying reptiles of the Mesozoic, specifically pterosaurs that are older than you might expect for where they're from and uh, polar. Ooh. Which is pretty fun. There's not a ton of pterosaur here, but uh, it's pretty cool stuff. <laughs> this is research by Adele Pentland et al. in the journal Historical Biology. And in the blog post, we will link to a press release on SciTech Daily from Curtin University. The pterosaurs in question come from Australia. Now, some of you are thinking, wait, you said polar. Hang on, bear with me. Australia, so pterosaurs, uh, again, flying reptiles, these are known from the fossil record of Australia throughout the Cretaceous period, but typically they tend to be in the later parts of the Cretaceous. This research describes some pterosaur fossils from the Eumerala Formation of Victoria. These date to the Albion, so they are about 107 million years old. These are, according to the researchers, the first known pterosaurs from the early Cretaceous of Victoria, and because they are in this formation, so far the oldest known pterosaur fossils in Australia. Awesome. So these are our earliest look at pterosaurs. Like I said, it's not a very complete look. There are two specimens that they describe. One is a partial synsacrum. This is a pelvic structure, so part of the hips. Uh, birds also have a structure called a synsacrum. It's a bunch of hip bones fused together. The other is a left metacarpal four. <laughs> so it is a hand bone, yep. or in the case of pterosaurs, a wing bone. Not the long, long wing bone, but part of the actual like palm of the hand. That's it. Partial pelvis and a single wing bone. Enough to say pterosaurs in an interesting place, not enough to identify any particular species, although the researchers do point out that the two bones are different enough in their overall characteristics that they're probably two different individuals. Okay. They don't line up. I think size was one of it. Uh, preservational style may have been one of them. That these don't appear to have come from the same pterosaur. So most likely two separate pterosaurs that left us a, a chunk each. Just a little, just a little, <laughs> just a little tiny bit. The pelvic remains 
are large enough compared to other known pterosaurs that the researchers say this is a pterosaur that probably had a two meter wingspan or more. Okay. So six, seven feet wingspan, which is pretty standard as pterosaurs go. And also that the bone is developed far enough that it's probably an adult. The other fossil, the metacarpal, the hand bone, is much smaller than this other specimen. And indeed, they point out smaller than other pterosaurs known from Australia. Ooh. Which leads them to suggest that it might be a juvenile, a young pterosaur. Cool. If that's the case, it would be the first juvenile pterosaur known from Australia. That's exciting. Man, dig there more. Yeah, yeah, apparently just not a whole lot of pterosaur stuff from Australia. (laughs) The other thing that's interesting about this find is that at this time in Earth history, Australia was farther south than it is today, and the region of Victoria was within the polar circle. So this was a region where you would have had colder climates, less sunlight. So, well, a different sunlight regime, you would have had long periods of darkness, is a more accurate way to say that. That's interesting. We've talked about this on the podcast before. Looking at ancient organisms living in polar latitudes always leads us to ask questions about what were they doing up there? How were they surviving up there? Yeah, were you specialized for this? Uh, Episode 114, we talked about polar habitats. Pterosaurs have been found from high latitudes in a handful of places around the world. This is another example. This suggests that pterosaurs were surviving at very high latitudes near the poles, but leaves us with many questions about what exactly they were doing. We don't know, for example, were you adapted for living your whole life up there or were you migratory? Yes. Pterosaurs could certainly have migrated in and out of the polar circle were they so inclined. Yeah, absolutely. Which means that it could have just been a normal pterosaur that just came in to visit. Uh, Right. You came up here for the summers. (laughs) Exactly. Or down here. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, But if it was specialized for that area, that'd be fascinating. Yeah. Unfortunately, a a hip and a hand bone are not enough yet for us to understand if they were adapted for this environment. But certainly an indicator of a place and time to keep looking for more pterosaur stuff. That's very exciting. Well, and especially like for the habitat, but also the age and the country, you know, the continent it's on, all of which are, if we can find more here, that will be just so many new looks into something from different, for uh, new for different reasons, like all new. For, and that's very exciting. Cool. Yeah. Also, it sounds like there are people working at it. Uh, the press release has a, a nice shout out to a bunch of the volunteers who helped in at least excavating these, maybe also preparing them. But there's a, a line from one of the authors who's quoted as talking about how a bunch of volunteers uh, participated. And also that apparently excavating this formation involved tunneling like 60 meters into a seaside cliff Whoa. or something to that effect. Uh, it's nice to see people doing the work acknowledged in a press release. <laughs> yeah, no, and that's some work. <laughs> yeah, it sure is. Very cool. My next bit of news is also about another kind of archosaur. Oh, it's an archosaur heavy episode. For an archosaur heavy month. <laughs> this is about a new species of pachycephalosaur, which are your dome-headed dinosaurs. This is a new species with some indications to the dome that suggests it might have had ornamentation or something ornamentish on the dome itself. Hmm. 
This is research by John Horner et al. in the Journal of Verbit Paleontology, and the article is a press release from the University of California, Berkeley, in Eureka Alert. This is just a partial skull, so they don't have the full specimen from Hell Creek Formation in Montana, which makes it Upper Cretaceous, about 68 million years old. It does preserve some of the dome of the skull, and they noted that it is relatively low and broad, and noted that it is neither round nor oval in dorsal view. So looking at it from above, it had it has a notable shape compared to other pachycephalosaurs. They suspect it's likely an adult because it had advanced ontogenetic age according to the bones. It seemed developed, it didn't seem young. And it is intermediate in size, so kind of middle-ranged size compared to other pachycephalosaurs from the site. Uh, I would assume that means, like, human-sized. Yeah, they didn't give any size, like full size estimates, but yeah, that according to the other ones there, that would make sense. One of the first things they checked uh, and noted is that it doesn't fit in into, into any of the other ontogenetic continuums or growth series from the other pachycephalosaurs at Hell Creek. It's not just a young or adult of another known species, which is a thing that has come up with pachycephalosaurs before. Absolutely. There's a couple there that the couple of growth series that it could have fallen into and from what they can tell it doesn't seem to fit either of those so they have interpreted it as a new species which they named platytholus clemensi which being a new species and seemingly a different size compared to the other adult pachycephalosaurs there could suggest that there was more diversity than we had previously known and that there may have been some size niche partitioning, as is often the first thought when we see different sized members of the same group all in the same place around the same time, right. that you may have been living in different lifestyles or feeding or using different parts of the habitat based on your size. But the big news that everything's been focusing on is they CT scanned the skull and found vascular networks running through the bone, spaces for blood vessels, canals. They noted an abundant amount of them passing through the dome to the top surface hmm. and said that based on the the features of these canals, it suggests likely a keratinous structure. So the same material as, you know, our fingernails and, you know, rhino horn, that sort of stuff, which has been, you know, suggested for many ornamentations on dinosaurs before, but that some specifically, and I didn't find what noted this, you know, what about the canals, but that it would be vertically oriented. So up and down. Hmm. That the keratin would be coming out straight up and down, basically, off the dome because of the way these canals are structured. So that there would have been some form of scale or scute or feature on top of the dome, yep. beyond just the bone or skin, that had this particular shape to yeah, it. And was likely sticking up, not lying flat against the dome. Interesting. The way they described it was, like, potentially bristles of keratin. Like if you had a flat top haircut, hmm. they don't know what, you know, the shape of it because that did not preserve, but that based on these canals, it suggests some sort of feature, which has led into discussion about what the dome was for, which is often a topic of conversation when we talk about these dinosaurs. Classically in kids books, I'm sure many people have seen the depictions of them butting heads, which has been the suggestion for quite some time, but more and more recently, num numerous researchers have come out to question or at least take a closer look at that and see is that actually what the bone suggests was happening with it is that what the structure of the neck suggests 
And they did note that if there is a complex keratin structure on the dome, that leans them more toward a display function sure. than a combat or, you know, butting heads function. But interestingly, they did note the skull has a gouge in it that seems to have healed about a half inch deep gouge in the dome, indicating some serious injury happened to this animal. Hmm. And it survived long enough to at least have bone fill it back in, which could be evidence for headbutting. They they noted this is probably the first unequivocal evidence of head trauma in pachycephalosaurus. Yeah, the actual damage to that dome. Mm-hmm. That could be evidence toward headbutting, but they pointed out any other thing could have also caused the... A uh, right. tree could have fallen on it, yeah, an you animal could, could you have could attacked... bitten the head. Yeah, you could have fallen down a hill and landed on your head. Like, yep. a number of things could cause that injury. So it's not a smoking gun, I think uh, one of the authors called it, for headbutting. But they do have an injured dome that also seems to have been maybe maybe decorated with some keratin structure. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting to to interpret the possibility of some sort of displaced function on top of the dome. Mm-hmm. A lot of pachycephalosaurs have like spikes and bumps and stuff around the base of the dome, which have been interpreted as possibly an ornamental feature. Kind of like we see similar bumps and knobs and things on like tyrannosaur heads and other dinosaurs like that. And if that's the case, it's not surprising that you would... Use, that's, a, that's a prime real estate yes. up there on top of the head to support some sort of structure. You get this hill to display upon. But that's never been shown, to my knowledge, with any evidence no. before. And I've never seen, like, paleo art or anything. So it's... Yeah. That, the, the, they have paleo art for this, and it shows a normal pachycephalosaur face. And then on top of the dome, there is this very low but kind of flattened keratin field of bristles and it is a new potential way to interpret them and just adds to that conversation of what was this dome for i wonder if we see similar structures within the bone of other pachycephalosaur domes yep interesting well i guess we'll find out more in the future (laughs) i've got one more news which is not at all about archosaurs or even reptiles although it is another australia news which i did not put together in my head uh when i chose them all right so news from the place with the largest crocs today fitting sure sure yeah we're on the (laughs) croc month this is research about giant marsupials nice uh specifically how they evolved uh the particular way that they walked as they grew to giant sizes this is research by Jacob Van Zolen et al. in Royal Society Open Science, and we will link to another press release in Science Daily by Flinders University. The giant marsupials in question are a group called Diprotodontids. This is an extinct group of marsupials, big herbivores, that include the largest marsupials known. In the genus Diprotodon, these lived during the Ice Age, and could grow up to two, two and a half tons. Yeah. Big ol' marsupials. That's rhino or hippo-sized. These went extinct around 40,000 years ago, uh, towards the end of the Ice Age, but have been described from some relatively well-known fossils. This study describes a new skeleton of an older diprotodontid. This comes from South Australia uh, back to the Pliocene. The skeleton is about three and a half million years old. Interestingly enough, this is a new specimen, not a new species, although they do give it a new name. Oh. So this is an already known species called Zygomaturus kenai, 
This is Diprotodontid. It's not nearly as big as Diprotodon. The press release described it as a quarter ton animal. So it's still big. Yeah. But quite a bit smaller than Diprotodon, but still a large bodied animal. This species has previously been described only from isolated teeth, teeth by themselves, and bits and pieces of jaws. This new specimen has a bunch of skull and a bunch of parts of the limbs, which allows a much more complete look at this animal, complete enough that the authors identify it at, that the authors suggest that it is not actually part of the genus that it's named. So the genus Zygomaturus is, there are apparently a few different species of it. With this much specimen, the researchers are suggesting this actually does not look like all those other Zygomaturus. So they keep the species, but they move it into a new genus. So Zygomaturus kenai becomes Ambulator kenai. Cool. In addition, this is uh, apparently only the third, they described it as, this is the third partial skeleton, so more than just bits and pieces, one assumes, the third example of a partial skeleton of a late Cenozoic diprotodontid described in the last century. (laughs) This time range of this family of marsupials at this level of completeness, which isn't all that complete, is just extremely uncommon. Wow. They also, one of the feet of this specimen, it was in concretion, so this hard concreted sediment. So they CT scanned it and found not only insights into the structure of the bones, but an impression of the foot pad. (gasps) So they could see what the foot was shaped like. Nice. Which is pretty cool. So foot pad plus skeletal remains all together. They were able to describe the anatomy of the limbs of this animal. And overall, they identified a number of adaptations for the way that they walked. There's a great quote in the press release by one of the authors saying uh, something to the effect of, we think of walking as being sort of obvious, but if you're doing a lot of walking, you need adaptations for walking. Yep. Here, the limbs seem to suggest that this animal maintained a columnar posture, which is to say the legs straight or at least straighter underneath the body, like columns, that the hands are well adapted for bearing weight, not for grasping anymore, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that in the hand, one of the wrist bones is enlarged to serve as sort of a pseudo heel bone, which is a feature that apparently is known in later diprotodontids, that it is one of the ways their hands had become better weight bearing structures like the feet. Yeah. Overall, they said superficially, so just from a from the broad perspective, the legs look like elephant legs. Yep, yep. They're not all the same adaptations, but adapting in the same way. Big pillar-like legs to support a large body. This suggests adaptations, like with elephants, for, uh, specifically as they described it, carrying a large body long distances. Mm-hmm. But this was meant to get a big body moving over long distances. Uh, regions. This marks the earliest evidence of, this is a term, the term they use is graviportal locomotion. Graviportal means carrying a big heavy body. Mm -hmm. The earliest evidence of graviportal locomotion in diprotodontids. So this is the early stages of this series of adaptations that would allow the big, big ones later on in the Cenozoic. 
Very cool. Uh, and indeed, the name Ambulator means walker or wanderer, I think is one of the other words that they used in the press release. Very cool. It's it's neat to get to see the, you know, the early steps for handling the giant body sizes we'll see later in this yeah, group. Early steps. Yep, yep. <laughs> but also the fact that they are doing similar things to other big heavy animals. Yep, we see similar adaptations in big dinosaurs. This is a recurring feature. And it's and it's yet another example of marsupial and placental convergent mm-hmm. evolution, which I I always find delightful. It's such a nice way to show convergent evolution because so often we talk about the differences between those two groups and being able to show that. But if they're surviving in similar conditions or in similar ways, they actually will become more similar because it's what works. It's what gets the job done. Yeah, and. That's neat. The authors also pointed out that during this time period throughout the Pliocene is a time where drier climates are leading to more open habitats, grasslands and habitats like that, which may be one of the factors that supported this evolution of bigger bodies adapted for longer distances. Yes. That if you're moving out of forested environments and into more open habitats, that is a beneficial way to be. Yeah. So this this may also be the start of this lineage may be linked to environmental changes as well. Which very much makes sense. Like it's elephants very much are traveling across wide expanses of dry land looking mm-hmm. for the next lush or watery area. So more information on the evolution of giant marsupials, a group that apparently there's not a ton of evidence about. Yeah. As it turns out. It it feels like that is often the case for many lineages and and ages in Australia's fossil record that. Mm -hmm. Like the pterosaurs mm -hmm. we were just talking about, not a ton of material. There's lots of cool paleontology there, but the fossil record can be very patchy just because of the nature of that continent and that landmass. That's the end of the news. Often uh, we will you know, try to come up with some sort of clever segue <laughs> into our main topic. I knew going into it that it did not matter at all what the news was. Yep. We would have mentioned dates. Yep. We mentioned the ages of these fossils, which leads wonderfully into our main episode discussion. Uh, because in the news, we did not talk at all about how, where we get those dates from. We say them as a given. Yes. This episode, we are going to go into a whole lot of detail on how do we actually determine the ages of things in the geologic record. Stay tuned for uh, what promises to be a fascinating discussion about just, just, just foundational science of paleontology. Stick around. When we find a fossil, or a fossil site, or a geologic formation, how do we know how old it is? This is one of those topics that comes up on basically every episode of the podcast. We talk about a fossil, or a site, and we say, here's how old it is, but which we rarely have taken the time to slow down and really analyze the science that goes behind those dates. Now, we did an episode, episode 12 about the geologic timescale, and we talked a bit about how we determine ages, how we determine the events in the history of the Earth. That episode was much more focused on how have we determined the timescale, the big picture. We did talk a bit about 
dating methods and how we determine stuff. So we're going to try not to overlap too heavily with that discussion. If you want to hear that, go back and listen to episode 12. In this episode, we're going to try to focus much more on how do we actually do it? What is the actual science behind how we figure out the age of a thing? Yeah, not quite a step-by-step, but what are some of the steps we have to go through when we want to ID how old some new site or fossil is? Indeed. Now, as a little review, there are two categories of ways that geologists, paleontologists, determine the age of something in the geological record. These are absolute dating and relative dating. We're going to do a bunch of details, but the brief overview is absolute dating is actually calculating something directly. Yes. Absolute dating means you have something you can count or measure that gives you a direct date. This fossil is 23.5 million years old, give or take a small percentage of possible error or whatever. Relative dating is determining the age of stuff relative to each other. Yeah. This event happened after this. This layer is younger than the layer below it. These organisms lived at this time period, which is after this event, but before this extinction event, putting things sort of in sequence, whether they happened before something else, after something else, during something else, in between something else. That's relative dating. Yeah, relative to other dated things or other things around that site or fossil. Yes. it's It makes me think a lot more of those uh, problem-solving puzzles that you might have done in school where it's, if so-and-so went to this store and bought this color tie, right. and so-and-so didn't go to this store but did, you know, you're using the information you have to say, all right, based on everything, it should be about here. Yes. Now... When we're determining the ages of stuff in the fossil record, in the geologic record, we're these days we use an expansive combination of both of these techniques. One thing that I'll note here before we go into details is most of the time when we pick up a fossil and say how old it is, we're using relative dating. Yes. Most fossils themselves don't get directly dated. And most of the time that you ask a paleontologist, like this happens at the Gray Fossil Site a lot, where someone will point at the exhibit and go, That turtle shell, how old is that? And I say it's about 5 million years old because it's from the gray fossil site. That's how old the gray fossil site is. That's effectively a relative date. Yeah, yeah, that I know how old the site is. That's how old this is. If you have a dinosaur bones, all right, it's a T-Rex. How old is this T-Rex? It's from the latest Cretaceous because that's when T-Rex lived. I don't actually need to do a direct date on that fossil. We will go into a bit more about relative dating later in the episode, but especially since we've we've talked a bit more about relative dating in previous discussions, I want to dive right in to absolute dating, because usually this is what people are asking for yes. when they say, how do we determine the age of something? Most of the time, what they mean is, how do you know the exact number of this thing? Absolute dating is how we do that. There are many forms of absolute dating, calculating the age of something. Generally speaking, most forms of absolute dating rely on a very simple basic principle. If you can find a thing in nature that changes over time at a standard rate, you can measure how much change has happened and calculate how long it's been. Yes. It's like this changes this much every century. Well, here's how much it's changed. Here's how many centuries that takes. 
most absolute dating really comes down to that. We have a process. We know how fast it takes. We're just doing some basic math. Obviously, it gets more complicated when we actually have to find them and measure them and do all the stuff. Oh, and figuring out those rates can be some some hefty science that has to happen beforehand. For sure. But that's what absolute dating often tends to be. By far, the most famous and commonly used category of absolute dating is radiometric dating, Mm -hmm. where the thing we're measuring is certain isotopes, certain forms of elements in nature, break down over time. They decay. So radioactive decay. We know the rate of decay. We measure how much decay has happened. We calculate the age. By far the most famous and commonly cited method of radiometric dating is carbon dating. Yeah. This is the one, if you've never heard of any other form of geologic dating, you probably have heard of carbon dating. So let's begin our discussion of the details of absolute dating with carbon dating. And by that, I mean, let's talk about physics a bit. Yay. Carbon. We're going to go, we're going to go way down to the fundamentals. We're going to talk about what, what's actually happening. What are we actually measuring? Carbon is an element. It exists here on the planet Earth. It is very abundant. I've got a bunch of carbon. Will's got a bunch of carbon. Probably most of our listeners uh, are made of a lot of carbon. Though all silicon-based life is welcome. Absolutely. And we thank you for listening to the podcast. Thanks for checking it out. This is going to be a little bit different from how (laughs) things are done in your planet, I am sure. (laughs) Atoms of carbon, like atoms of everything, are made up of protons and neutrons within the nucleus with electrons swirling around them. Carbon typically has six protons and six neutrons. The number of protons is the atomic number. Carbon is number six. The number of protons plus neutrons is the atomic weight. Yes. Carbon generally has a weight of 12. This form of carbon is called carbon 12. Mm -hmm. There are other forms. There is carbon 13, which has seven neutrons. There is carbon 14, which has eight neutrons. These are isotopes, different forms of carbon atoms. All three of these occur naturally. Yes. So carbon-12 is very common. Carbon-13 and carbon-14 occur in smaller amounts. But if you find carbon somewhere, you've got all three. Yeah. Our bodies have all three of these forms of carbon. Carbon-12 and carbon-13 are stable, which means if you leave them to their own devices, they're going to be carbon-12 and carbon-13 forever. Carbon-14 is unstable. Uh-oh. It breaks down over time. Carbon-14 naturally left by itself is just going to eventually stop being carbon-14 because it breaks down. Yeah, things have gone far enough out of that balance of neutrons and protons that it's not behaving quite the same way. When carbon-14 breaks down, specifically what happens is that effectively one of its neutrons breaks. Yeah. It splits into, it, it releases an electron and becomes a proton. Mm-hmm. If you want more about how exactly that works, I find a physics podcast. That that this is about as into it as oh. we're gonna get. <laughs> like, that, well, so the neutron, one of the neutron breaks. It becomes a proton is left behind, and it releases an electron and also an antineutrino. And I don't really right. know what that is, so we're not going to go into a lot of detail. But suffice it to say, it shoots off some particles. That's radiation. Yes. That's, that's radioactivity. Yeah, that when you get bombarded by radiation, it's these particles getting shot off of radioactive material. This is what can hit your DNA and do damage. Yes. It's this stuff being released by these breaking neutrons. 
releasing an electron and an antineutrino, results in this atom now having seven protons and seven neutrons, which makes it nitrogen. Yeah. This is now nitrogen-14. Nitrogen-14 is stable. That's going to stay nitrogen-14 forever. This process of breakdown is called radioactive decay. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It is breaking down over time. It is releasing radiation. For those of you who are really interested, the releasing of the electron is specifically beta decay. Because that is a beta particle that is being released. Carbon-14 is formed in the atmosphere when carbon meets cosmic rays, which just means radiation from space, Mm -hmm. which is coming in here all the time, creates carbon-14 up in the atmosphere, and then over time, carbon-14 gradually gives way to nitrogen-14. So carbon-14 is an isotope of carbon that gradually changes over time. Where this becomes relevant to discussions of fossils is that we are filled with carbon. Mm -hmm. While an organism is alive, plant, animal, whatever, we are constantly taking in carbon from the atmosphere and releasing it. Plants absorb it from the atmosphere. Animals get it largely from plants, which means that we all have this constant cycle of carbon of all forms coming in and out of our bodies. When an organism dies and stops gaining and releasing more carbon, all the stable carbon is going to stay there, and the carbon-14 is going to slowly decay away. Mm -hmm. So, we can use radioactive carbon, carbon carbon-14, to date an organic thing. If we find a fossil plant, or a fossil animal, or whatever, all we need to do is know the rate of decay, how fast does that decay happen, and measure how much of that decay has already happened in this sample. Now, we'll get into how we do those measurements and how we determine that, but I want to, before we do that, mention the very important point that carbon is not the only element we use for radiometric dating. Mm-hmm. There are actually tons of radioactive isotopes. We, we There's all sorts of ones that we can use that each decay in different, they're found in different situations, they decay at different rates, with different radioactive processes. I want to highlight two other ones because they are the other two that are extremely commonly used and extremely important for geologic dating. Potassium and uranium. Yep. Potassium occurs naturally, generally as three different potassiums. Potassium-39, potassium-40, and potassium-41. Once again, one of those is radioactive, potassium-40, which decays over time into argon-40. For those of you who are interested, the way that this decay happens is actually called electron capture. And what happens is that one of the electrons in the outer rings of the outside the nucleus... In the electron cloud. ...gets absorbed into the nucleus (laughs) and combines with a proton to form a neutron. That's awesome. Which is, yeah. So there's different ways of decay. Whoa, that's really cool. While carbon is found in organic stuff, potassium is very common in minerals like feldspars and micas. Uh, Potassium is exceptionally good if you want to date something like volcanic ash. Because you get lots of potassium in there, and where there is potassium, some amount of it, just like the carbon, is radioactive and is decaying. The other one, uranium. So uranium is a little bit different. All the isotopes of uranium are radioactive. That's kind of what it's known for. That's kind of uranium's (laughs) whole deal. Uranium is found, again, in several different versions, all of which decay over time. 
the two most common isotopes and the ones that are used in geologic dating are uranium-238, which decays into lead-206, and uranium-235, which decays into lead-207. Uranium is found in lots of minerals, especially in things like zircons, which we have mentioned on the podcast before. One of the things that's cool about uranium is that unlike the decay of potassium-40 and carbon-14, those two are one step. Yes. One thing happens, and you have a new stable thing. Uranium decay goes through many steps before finally reaching a stable stopping point. So, for example, uranium-238 decays via, I believe it's alpha decay, which means that it releases a cluster of two protons and two neutrons. Gotcha. Which is an alpha particle or a a, a nucleus of helium. (laughs) Uh, And it shoots it off, and then it becomes something new. Uranium-238 decays into thorium-234, which is unstable. So it decays into palladium-234, which is unstable, Mm -hmm. and decays into uranium-234, which is unstable, to thorium, to radium, to radon, to polonium, to lead, to bismuth, to polonium, to lead, to bismuth, to polonium, to lead-206, which is stable, and it stays there. Yep. This is a many-step process to get from uranium to something that actually sticks around for a long time. I have always thought this kind of radioactive decay is so fascinating because it it makes me think of what's happening inside of stars where Mm -hmm. elements are being fused through just immense forces into new elements. And then those new elements are being fused into even heavier new elements. And then you just keep going in the biggest stars until eventually you have this long list of elements that have just been smashing them together. This is kind of a similar thing where you're going through this laundry list, but you're losing yeah, bits we're, and pieces. We're becoming, I mean, smaller. That's yeah. not all of it. But yeah, we are decaying over time. And it, and then you eventually finally settle into lead. I've also thought radiation is so cool because it's, it's like one of the closest ways we have to like alchemy. And that mm-hmm. this thing became this other thing on a different part of the periodic table. We literally turned a thing into lead. It literally <laughs> shifted. <laughs> it is literally now not what it was. It is lead now, and it's going to stay that way. Now, there are other radioactive elements that are used in dating. There's rubidium, there's beryllium, there's neon, there's aluminum. There's tons. There yeah. Tons of elements have radioactive isotopes, and many of them are also used in dating. Carbon, potassium, and uranium are kind of the the big three, the big trinity. And this long list might seem weird because radioactivity so often gets only talked about with highly radioactive stuff. Right. But we are surrounded by very low level. Oh, yeah. The radiation from the sun is one, but like elements in our planet are just, there's radioactive stuff all around, but it's usually so mild that you would have trouble measuring it with most tools that you could just get a hold of. Right. Like, our bodies are filled with radioactive materials. We are slightly, technically. Carbon-14. Radioactivity makes the news when it is enough to be dangerous. If I remember correctly, I think one of the reasons that uranium is dangerous, uh, or at least part of the reason, is that the particles are bigger. Yeah, exactly. And that, therefore, they are more potentially damaging if they collide with other stuff. Yes, absolutely. You're just, you are emitting more and so that's that's going to have more energy one way or another. Now, if we want to use this decay for dating materials, we need to know the rate of decay. Mm-hmm. How fast is that decay happening? 
radioactive materials decay at an exponential rate, which is to say, so if you think exponential growth is doubling every period, so every month or your interest doubles or whatever, and it's going to be double after the first period, quadruple after the next one, and so on and so on, exponential decay is half, 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 half. Yes. We talk about this decay in terms of half-lives. Yep. A half-life is the period, the amount of time it takes for a sample of this material to decrease by half due to decay. Mm-hmm. After one half-life, there's half the sample remaining. After two half-lives, there's a quarter. Three half-lives, there's an eighth, then a sixteenth, a thirty-second, and so on and so forth. Every half-life, you lose half of the sample. So for a given amount of carbon-14 or amount of uranium-238, every half-life you're going to lose half of that amount. The pattern is always the same. It's always half, half, half. The rate changes quite a bit. There are tons of isotopes that have half-lives of weeks or minutes. There are many that have half-lives of fractions of seconds. They decay almost instantaneously, very, very quickly. The ones that are useful for dating are the isotopes that have half-lives that are very long. Carbon-14 has a half-life of 5,730 years. Every 5730 years, half of that amount of carbon is gone. Potassium-40's half-life is 1.25 billion years, a very (laughs) slow decay rate. And uranium-238 has a a half-life of 4.47 billion years. So, about the age of the Earth. (laughs) Uranium decays very slowly, partially because there's so many steps. Yes. Each of those steps has its own decay rate so uranium-238 to lead specifically is 4.47 billion years each step in between has its own uh, rate of decay which is that that's so cool (laughs) yeah now at this point this is the part in describing radiometric dating where people usually go hang on how do you measure the half-life of something when the half-life is billions of years yes this is a great question we can measure the decay rate of an element in a laboratory setting. We, mm-hmm. can, we can watch it decay. We can use a number of tools to measure how much decay is happening. Again, some things decay in minutes, so we can watch the entire process. But like I said, the nice thing is the pattern is always the same. It's We know the shape of the graph. So we only actually have to measure a little bit of that graph to be able to extrapolate out the rest. And as we were just describing, this is stuff we can, like, it's shooting stuff off. Mm -hmm. It is changing. We can test and measure that. That's what a Geiger counter is doing. Like, each of those little blips on Mm -hmm. a Geiger counter, is it detecting one of those particles flying through the air? It's getting hit by something being shot off by a decaying isotope. So we can take a radioactive isotope in a laboratory setting and study it for days, weeks, years and get a sense of how much decay is happening, that gives us a part of the graph, and we know the shape of the graph. Exactly. So we can now extrapolate out and go, cool, this is what the rest of it is going to look like. That is, as these things go, pretty straightforward and simple math. Yeah, well, it's like you were saying, if I tell you that every day I will give you twice as much money as I gave you the last day, Mm -hmm. you don't know how much money you'll have because I haven't given you the first amount. But as soon as I give you a dollar the first day... You can now calculate exactly how much you'll have 15 days from now because you know what the pattern's going to be. We're doing that in reverse. Exactly. The other thing that we can do in a laboratory setting is test what interferes with decay. 
So we can take a thing that's decaying in a lab and just bombard it with all sorts of weird conditions to see (laughs) if any of them interfere with that rate. This has been done, and we can tell from those tests that the rate of decay is not affected by the sorts of natural things you'll encounter, like heat or pressure or gravitational shifts and stuff like that, which means that we can say with quite a bit of certainty that these decay rates are constant over time, that the shape of that graph is not going to be changed even over a billion years outside of very extreme, unusual circumstances. Until we come across some weird cosmic energy (laughs) on Earth that we hadn't detected before, nothing happening on Earth should be able to mess with this rate. Yes, there are things that can mess with the materials. (laughs) We'll talk about that in a little bit. But these measurements let us pick up a thing of carbon-14 and go, all right, this is how long it takes to decay. These are the the list of things that could potentially mess with that. As long as we're not dealing with anything like that, we can measure how much has happened and calculate how old that material is. Which brings us to the next quick question, which is how do we measure that? Yeah, how do we figure out where on that that graph we are? If you pick up a fossil, how do you know how much carbon-14 is in it? Uh, A little bit of history Carbon-14 is, uh, I think it's the longest-running method of radiometric dating we've been using. Certainly, it's the first one that was firmly established. Cool. Carbon-14 was developed in the late 1940s. This is a technique that we, which I I feel like is both longer than you might think and not as long as you might think. Right. Like, carbon dating is so well-established in science today that it feels like the fact that it's only like 70 years old yep. is kind of surprising. That there are people older than carbon dating. Absolutely, <laughs> yes. But on the other hand, I think sometimes it can feel like such a cool technology that you're like, oh, well, this must be like a you know the 80s or something. No, we've been doing carbon dating for almost a century. Yep. This is a well-established thing. In the early days, the way that they would measure the amount of carbon-14 in a material was effectively with a Geiger counter. You would do, I think it was called beta counting or something like that. You measure how much it is decaying right now mm-hmm. to get a sense of what is the current rate of decay, what what is the current pattern, and then figure out where you are on that graph. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, we can extrapolate, here's, the, here's, what's, here's how much decay is happening right now. We can use that to estimate how much carbon-14 is left in this sample and then extrapolate out to where we are on the curve. These days, we are much more commonly using mass spectrometry. Mass spectrometry, usually you're either vaporizing a sample or something, and then a mass spectrometer is a device that will detect often like the light, the radiation signature of the atoms in whatever your sample is. And based on the intensity of what it's measuring you can calculate how many atoms there were. Mass spectrometry allows you to literally count the atoms of a material that you're testing. It's kind of like if you ever have seen those flame tests in a lab or like, you know, burning a driftwood and it'll burn a different color because of the salt in it. Mm -hmm. It's it's a similar idea to that, that different elements have a different signature in the spectrum when exposed to certain conditions. Mm -hmm. So if you can read the spectrum that comes off a thing, when you expose it that way, you can get a readout for what was in it. Yes. It's, it's like burning driftwood, but on an atomic atom by atom scale. (laughs) Exactly. We can measure how many atoms there were. 
So you can treat a material, put it in a mass spectrometer and go, all right, here's how many carbon-14 atoms there were in there. Yes. And now we figure out where we were in our process. The benefit of that measurement technique is that, A, it's much more precise than the old techniques. It also means that we can do it with smaller samples. This is something that has happened over the history of carbon dating, is that we have gotten more and more precise with smaller and smaller samples. In the early days, in order to radiocarbon date a fossil material, you would need 10 grams or up to 100 grams of the material just to get an accurate date. Yeah. Nowadays, we, we're measuring samples in milligrams. Like We can take an extremely small amount and still be able to count those atoms in there. That's awesome. Now, here's an important note, because people will often ask, all right, you find a fossil, you want to date it, what do you do? Most places don't have a mass spectrometer that can calculate this. There are specialized labs that will do this testing. Kind of like when you get a medical test done, yeah. and they're like, all right, we, we drew blood, we're going to send it to the lab, and in a few days we'll have results for you. There are radiocarbon labs. There are radiometric dating labs around the world that you send it off to, and they have the, the conditions, they have the equipment to do that process. They're usually treating it in a special way. They're often purifying it. They might vaporize it, depending on exactly how they're measuring it. That whole procedure takes place at the lab. This is the case with carbon dating, with any kind of form of radiometric dating. Each of the methods has its own quirks, <laughs> its own benefits, its own complications, because, and this is an important note I will come back to, each method is different. Yeah. They're all radiometric dating. They're all radioactive decay. Every one of them is a very different process that's happening in nature. So, for example, carbon dating has a bunch of famous limitations. Carbon dating is only good for organic substances. Yep. You don't, you don't date, most of the time, rocks with carbon dating, but you can, very unusually, date fossils with carbon dating. It is one of the few radiometric dating techniques that you can actually use on a fossil. On the other hand, and here I think, is one of the facts about carbon dating that most often surprises people when I explain it to them. Carbon dating is only actually good for materials as old as about 50 or 60,000 years. Yeah. And if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you know that that is almost none of Earth history. Yep. That is a very short time span. It makes it great for, like, archaeological deposits, for late Ice Age stuff, which gets a lot of research and therefore a lot of use. But carbon dating doesn't actually go back very far. And the reason for that is that the half-lives are just too fast. Yes. If your half-life is almost 6,000 years, by the time you're 50,000 years old, the fraction that remains is so small that it's hard to measure accurately. Exactly. You're just There's not with, enough left. Yeah, you're dealing with so little material. And like as equipment gets better, we might be able to be mm -hmm. more and more accurate with less and less. And we have. We've pushed mm -hmm. that, that limit back. But yeah, at a certain point, there's, you know, there's just not enough at physical atoms of carbon-14 left for us to measure yeah. uh, properly. That it, it is basically gone, even though it's technically not it, it effectively, right. usably, it's no longer decaying. Which is why it's super nice that we have many forms of radiometric dates. The other thing that's an interesting quirk about carbon dating, ideally the way that we would do the measurement is to say, all right, 
when carbon-14 breaks down, it decays into nitrogen-14. So if we have a sample, we have the starting isotope, carbon-14. We have the, the what's called the daughter isotope, nitrogen-14. If we add them together, we have the original amount, and then we know how much has already decayed. Yeah, the ratio should tell us what point in the process we're at. Absolutely. That doesn't actually work with carbon dating because nitrogen-14 is a gas and it doesn't stick around. Good point. Nitrogen goes away. That is a very good point. <laughs> so all we have is the carbon. I feel very silly for not having thought of that. <laughs> yeah, it, well, yeah, once you hear it. Yeah. Well, and there's also, when we get to argon, it's going to get weird. Yes. But all we have is the carbon, which which raises the question of, how do you know what your starting point was? Yeah, exactly. Like, How do you know how much you started with in order to calculate how much has already decayed? And the answer with carbon-14 is that we can measure it in relation to the other forms of carbon. Mm -hmm. I mentioned earlier, everything with carbon in it has carbon-12, carbon-13, carbon-14. These exist in consistent ratios to each other. So you can measure the amount of carbon-12, which doesn't change over time, that has not changed, and say, all right, this percentage of that amount would have been carbon-14. That's the standard ratio in nature. So that's how much carbon-14 there was. Here's how much is left. We can compare that to our proportional starting point. So we get the starting amount by measuring the other carbon in the sample. Yeah, based on how much there is of this isotope based on compared to other kinds of carbon, there should have been this much to start with. Yes. Now... Uh, it gets complicated because that ratio actually changes yeah. in different. It'll be slightly different. For example, if it's in a plant versus in an animal, the ratio will be different. Certain environmental conditions can affect that. Atmospheric conditions change over time. Mm -hmm. And so the ratio is adjusted over time. So there has been tons of research into characterizing how does that ratio get tweaked when plants take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, when animals get carbon out of plants, in certain climate conditions. So we have all these little known equations that we use to calibrate our carbon dates. The caveats. Yep, the little caveats. And as we've gotten better and better data on those things, our carbon dates have gotten more and more and more accurate. Incidentally, the propensity for carbon ratios in, in nature to change is also related to the reason why there is a lower limit to the ages you can get with carbon dating. Ooh. Carbon dating loses accuracy if you try to date something more recent than the 1960s because we did a bunch of nuclear testing in the 1960s. I was wondering. And we screwed up the ratio of carbon in the atmosphere. <laughs> yep. So you, you wouldn't use carbon dating for something younger than that because the ratio is all off. Man. See, now I'm wondering of like, you know, millennia from now, archaeologists, will they have to have two sets of before and after then? There's uh, a very good chance. Or will there be a weird blip of like, will things stable back out? Right, right. And or so the equation like, works. Yeah, for, for this couple of centuries, you just can't use carbon yeah, dating. You have to, we have these other dating <laughs> methods because, listen, our ancestors really, <laughs> really messed things really up. Made a, really made a mess of stuff. I think also the Industrial Revolution in general uh, affected these ratios. That would make sense. So we like to use carbon for slightly older stuff. That would... Oh, man. That's... 
That is depressingly fascinating. Yep. <laughs> On another hand, potassium-argon dating, totally different scenario, totally different quirks. Potassium uh, to argon has a half-life of 1.25 billion years. Which, ugh. So it is great for most of Earth history. Uh, if you're too young, I think that potassium argon isn't generally used for younger than like a hundred thousand years, and I think the reason for that is just that not enough decay has happened. Yeah, it has the opposite problem we were talking about with carbon dating: is if you're too late in the process, too much change has happened for you to measure it. If you're too early, then not enough change has happened for yeah. you to get a good measurement. Potassium forty is often found, like I said, in very common minerals, really good for ash deposits, igneous deposits. In these cases, both potassium-40 and the daughter isotope argon-40 will be found in the minerals. Argon is a gas, but it gets trapped in the crystal lattice. Yeah. So it can't escape. So in the case of doing potassium-40 to uh, 40 to argon-40, we literally just measure the ratio in the rock. All right, add them together. That's what we, because there wouldn't be argon in here other than what has decayed from potassium 40. Yes. This isn't naturally occurring in this mineral. So we add them together. That's our starting amount. Here's how much is left. There's our radiometric date. This is another uh, technique that has gotten more and more precise over time and has become one of the top, like in terms of, you know, of sort of across Earth history, potassium dating is probably the number one form of dating for the bulk of Earth history. The classic way we would measure this required two separate measurements with two samples. One sample, you you take it from like the same layer or the same formation. One sample would be used for counting the potassium. One sample would be used for counting the argon. And then yeah. you'd get a ratio. As you might imagine, this procedure had issues with accuracy that could come about because you might get a lot of mixing of different minerals. It made it easier for if one sample was contaminated by, you know, other sediments had come in. Because you're measuring two samples, any little discrepancy between them could lead to your measurements being slightly off. So the dates in the old days had very large error bars. Yeah. So when we talk about error, when you see a radiometric date, you'll usually, it'll be 6.2 million years old, plus or minus 0.13 million years. That is accounting for all of the various ways that the date might just be a slightly off. That's the error. It's literally saying give or take yes. this much time. This Our date should be within that range. Yes. So we, we, we should be within, you know, 100,000 years of the actual date. Those errors have gotten smaller and smaller and smaller over time as our accuracy has improved to the point where these days we're doing radiometric dates with errors of like fractions of a percent. Yeah. Uh, it really, really good. Which dating. Insane. Absolutely that's, fantastic. That's, that's so sci-fi that we can do it. I love it. Now, one of the big ways that we were able to improve potassium dating is the development of a technique uh, called argon-argon dating. So, Classic is potassium argon dating. The new technique essentially uh, gets around the earlier issues by turning the remaining potassium into argon. Whoa! So you have one sample. It's got some potassium. It's got some argon. You irradiate the sample in such a way that it turns the potassium 40 into argon 39. 
So the natural decay of potassium-40 decays into argon-40. You turn the remaining potassium into argon-39, and now you can measure just the argon with a single measurement and get the ratio of your two argons to tell you how much potassium and argon was in the sample. That's awesome! This allows us to get dates on a single sample. It allows us to use much smaller samples. It gives us much more precision and much more accuracy. Yeah, because you're still getting the same two measurements. It's just now you can use one testing method. Yes! Oh man, you just microwave it. (laughs) Well, that does bring up the interesting point. Uh, One of the complications with this is just that it's a lot harder to do and it's more expensive because in order to turn potassium-40 into argon-39, you require a nuclear reactor (laughs) in order to irradiate it. So it's harder to do in that respect. That does make a lot of sense, though, because like to artificially decay it that quickly. That's what earlier when I was saying we've tested Mm -hmm. what can mess with the decay rate. Not much. Yeah. A nuclear reactor is what it takes to do this kind of tinkering with uh, the isotopes. That, that It makes sense that it takes that much energy because that's that that's not a simple thing to do. Just go become this now. Click. Right. <laughs> you just put your palms together and put them on the floor and you draw a little circle and your potassium is now argon. Uh, this has become an extremely common uh, practice now. It's still, you know, it takes a nuclear reactor but more and more labs over time have been able to do this. Argon-argon dating has re- uh, resulted in extremely precise dates throughout Earth history. Oh, so cool. And finally, let's talk about uranium. Uranium dating is great for really old stuff because the, de- the half-life of uranium-238 into lead-206, as we said, is almost the age of the Earth. Yeah, so we can date basically the entire history of our planet using this. Uranium is very commonly found, as I mentioned, inside zircon crystals. And you may have heard us talk about zircon crystals before. These are some of the materials that are most commonly used to date the oldest rocks on Earth. Yep. The dating is uranium series dating. One of the coolest things about uranium that you can do that you don't get to do with the other forms is that, like we said, with carbon things, you're going to have multiple isotopes. With potassium, you're going to have multiple isotopes of potassium. In both cases, one of them is radioactive. That's the one that you're using. In any given sample of uranium, you're going to have multiple isotopes that are all radioactive. Mm -hmm. So I mentioned uranium-238 and uranium-235 are sort of the common ones. Any sample you get with uranium is going to have both. Yeah. And they have two different decay rates. They They decay on different patterns they decay into a different final stable isotope which means you can date that sample twice yeah you get a built-in it's a twofer you get two radiometric dating methods in the same sample another thing that's cool about uranium dating is that because uranium to lead is many many steps the individual steps in between can also be used for dating yes so uranium to thorium decay is often used for, like, cave deposits Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in rocks where uranium is naturally occurring but thorium isn't. Once the decay of both of them has kind of balanced out, so once it's old enough for that, I want to say that the decay, I want to say the half-life for this is, like, 75,000 years, or maybe it's 750,000, but it's some number of, of thousands of years. You can measure 
the ratio of those two to get much younger dates. Yeah. So uranium, if you there, there's all sorts of different radiometric dates you can get from a sample with uranium in it. This this is a this is probably one of my nerdiest uh, analogies, but this is like when some new thing is made, some new content is made for Star Wars, but it's not revealed. <laughs> it's not in connection with anything else. And then the fans immediately are going, all right, well, based off of what we're seeing, it has to be before episode five, but not necessarily after episode four. And like, so, and you're just looking at all the little things to figure out where <laughs> in the continuity it falls. You can do that with uranium of like, all right, which, which decay is most, is, is most applicable to the age or the state, you know, the conditions that we're looking at. Yeah. Well, and having that built-in cross-check brings up uh, another thing that we'll talk about more. Whenever possible, geologists will use as many forms of dating as are available. Because a single dating method is great, but if you can get two, three, four things in there, you strengthen the conclusions Mm -hmm. of your analysis. This is a concept that we're going to talk about as we go through this episode called consilience. Now, in a, a geologic time episode, I kept using the phrase, the word corroboration. Yes. You know, different studies that corroborate each other, which is a perfectly fine word, I think, to use. Consilience is the word that literally means the thing that I was talking about. <laughs> in science, consilience is multiple independent sources of information giving you the same answer and therefore strengthening that conclusion. Yeah. Corroboration will often be used in regards to things that help support other points of like mm-hmm. we think this animal might have been a swimmer and the fact that it was found with you know fish corroborates that that is adding support to that that is helping support sure, that sure. conclusion this is literally getting the same answer from yes. different techniques we we used four techniques to determine the age of this thing they all gave us the same answer yeah, we have this number from each one consilience that is a strong conclusion it's like using different methods to solve a math problem it's like you're using different techniques. You might be going about it in different steps, but as long as you come to the same answer, then that's what we're looking for. Now, uh, radiometric dating, of course, uh, overall has its quirks and things to be aware of. Generally speaking, it is very important when we're doing radiometric dates to be aware of the geology. Yeah. Because if the sediment is mixed, if you're getting multiple ages mixed within this one layer... That can confuse the dates or it can lead to less accurate dates if you're actually you're dating multiple different times that have been mixed together. Yeah, you think it's all samples from one layer, but really two layers have been mixed together. Mm -hmm. Also, certain rocks won't be used a lot of the time, like metamorphic rocks Mm. tend not to be used because by definition, metamorphic rocks have been subjected to intense heat and or pressure. Now, the heat and pressure doesn't typically actually affect the decay rate, but what it will do is it'll mess with the crystals of the mineral. Mm. And so the minerals might, for example, start leaking isotopes. Yeah. So they might lose some of those isotopes that were building up in there, and now not the full sample is left by the time it gets to us. It's like um, metalworking can do that, where you can lose parts of the metal just because working the metal works those bits, those elements out of the metal. Yeah, and that's like the slag that's yep. coming off. 
So you're just, you could actually physically lose some of the, the stuff yeah. that you would be measuring. You, you lost some of that argon 40 or whatever, and now you can't measure it accurately. Oh, that makes, that makes metamorphic rocks like the, the forged rocks yeah. of the world. Oh, they sure are. That's awesome. <laughs> Every form of radiometric dating tells you something similar, but different. This is another thing that's important to be aware of. Carbon dating, right? The carbon-14 becomes locked in when the organism dies Mm -hmm. and stops taking in more carbon from the atmosphere. So a carbon date, more or less, is usually telling you when this fossil, the organism that left this fossil, when it died. Yes. Potassium and uranium dating are dating minerals, and the elemental composition of those minerals locked in when they crystallized. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. usually that means when they hardened out of the molten rock they originally formed in, like with potassium dating being great for ash layers coming out of volcanoes. So those dates tell you when this mineral crystallized, which is why if you have a chunk of sediment that's all mixed together, you might have, let's say, a pond deposit, and it's a it's a deposit of mudstone from the pond, but a chunk of rock fell into the pond and got buried in the mud and is included in the mudstone that chunk of rock the date on that little chunk is going to tell you when that rock formation formed not when the mudstone itself formed and even though they came from the same habitat and the things living there would have been experiencing the pond and the rock mm-hmm. that rock did not was that not been born, there for a while yeah, <laughs> it was not born with the pond like the mudstone is there is a whole category of isotopes used in radiometric dating that are called cosmogenic isotopes cool which are used for what's called surface exposure dating. Mm. These are isotopes that are formed when atoms in the in a rock surface are exposed to cosmic radiation. Mm-hmm. So just like carbon-14 gets mutated effectively in the atmosphere, there are a bunch of isotopes that form on the surface as light hits them. This is often, these uh, isotopes are often found in quartz and olivine. This includes stuff like beryllium and things like that. Once that becomes buried, there's no more radiation coming down and hitting them. So those isotopes begin to slowly decay without being replaced. So a date with those isotopes tells you the last time that that rock was exposed to the light. Oh, that's so cool. Yep. This is another one where being aware of the geology is super important, because if it's like, this was a rock that got buried and then eroded out, and then buried again, and then eroded out, every time it gets eroded out, it's resetting that (laughs) isotope clock, because it's being exposed to the light again. Just getting the image of the rock getting buried and then getting exposed again, and the stars being like, hey, buddy! There he is! Oh, man, I'm... Oh, you're gone again. Let's just charge you back up with with your isotopes. It's been a while since we caught up. So every form of radiometric dating has its own things to be aware of. Make sure you're familiar with the geology. Make sure you're aware of the chemical process that is happening here. But as long as we're accounting for those things, we can get extremely precise and extremely accurate dates. And like I said, the way that we confirm the accuracy of these dates is by comparing them with other methods. Yes. This is a question that comes up a lot when you talk about geologic dating. People say, all right, well, how do you know that all of this is even right? Yeah, exactly. How how can we be sure that these things are actually the proper ages? 
And part of it comes down to just knowing the science really well, mm-hmm. right? The science of radiometric dating is just nuclear physics. Yes. Like, that's a thing we've been doing for a long, long time. But also, we have all these different methods that give us the same results. That's that consilience that we were talking about. The more times, the more different methods give you the same answers, the more... It is very unlikely that you use several different methods and you mess up with all of them. Or we're just fundamentally wrong or misunderstanding. Right. And still get the same answer every time. Yes. But that, these are different processes, different materials, different conditions. That shouldn't happen. Yes. And that's, I think that's a very important thing to point out because that's often the concern you'll hear and the, the kind of discomfort that will come up is, okay, but it, uranium, we could date basically the whole planet. And if we date the whole planet using uranium, but then if we're wrong about some aspect of uranium, uh, aren't all those dates now, like it's not our entire understanding of the history of the planet <laughs> now standing on an eggshell. And you know, A, well, no, we have studied it very well. So we are not just... We're very familiar with uranium. Yes. Like we, we have a, a very interesting relationship with it. <laughs> but we are using these other techniques that, as you've noted multiple times work differently. They each have their own characteristics, their own quirks, their own unique way of having to study it, but also the way it interacts with the ecosystem and and its own process. And if we are using these different, you know, varied techniques, and they are all giving us a very close answer, that that is a very good indication that that answer has got to at least have some good merit to it. Because mm-hmm. even if we find out, well, actually, we need to adjust this measurement because we've learned that uranium does something weird or potassium does something weird that and we that didn't happens. know. Yeah, we do. We're, we're always refining mm-hmm. and improving that accuracy and precision. But if we have it to where they all overlap on this one range, that range is probably not going to adjust much when we adjust one of them. Right. So this still gives us a pretty solid dating system to work with even as we continue to learn and adjust and better understand the physics of these particles. Absolutely. It's a it's like having a building with multiple support pillars. So if you knock one out, the whole thing's not coming down. Yes. Which is why it's so nice that we have, we've got the big three, but there are dozens of different commonly used isotopes with their own radiometric decay equations. We use all of them to corroborate, to support, to reinforce each other. And even beyond that, radiometric dating is only one of the methods that we have to use for dating things in the geologic record. We've focused a bunch on it because it's the big one. It's yes. the one people want to know about. Because well, it's it's like when you think of dating a thing, you know, scanning it and getting a date, this is this is what's in your brain, whether you realize it or not. This is <laughs> this is the one that's actually giving you back a number. After the break, we'll talk a bit about some of the other common methods that are not at all radiometric data, completely different processes. And then we'll also talk about how we bring them all together to actually, in the real world, get the age of a deposit. Stay tuned. So as we were just discussing, the more methods we have to determine the age of something in the geologic record, 
the stronger our conclusions are made. Mm-hmm. We just spent a whole lot of time talking about radiometric dating, but there's plenty other ways that we can determine the age of things that also helps to create that consilience, that helps to strengthen our results. Here's a bunch of them and how they work and what they're useful for, just to give us a sense of what are what are some of the common non-radiometric methods we have. Starting at the top, let's start with fission track dating. I want to start with fission track dating because it kind of is still radiometric dating. <laughs> fission track dating is basically the same thing as uranium lead dating, but instead of measuring the ratio of the isotopes, you measure the damage in the crystal caused by the radiation. Oh, cool. Those particles being shot out of the uranium atoms are powerful enough. That radiation is powerful enough to leave tracks of damage in the crystal structure. Like literally the tracks from the fission. Fission track dating. So researchers will get crystals. Zircon is really, really good for this. And look at it under a microscope or through another method and use the density or amounts or patterns of damage in the crystal to estimate how much decay has happened. That, that is so cool. It's a great demonstration of like, this is actually a physical, like, yeah, it's, this isn't like, it's not just like, you know, Oh, it's light or whatever. mm -hmm. You just see, no, no particles. Yes. Like lit. That's, that's, I know light's a particle. You know what I mean? (laughs) Well, in that it's that it's gets to that weird thing of like, radiation we think of as being just this you know ephemeral th- uh, thing but it is bits of stuff shooting off yeah and i know there are other like there's materials and like uh, there's some way to, to some form of gas that you can visualize it by seeing it'll oh, yeah. make either patterns or a little bullet track time way. yeah basically track ways, yeah and so you can actually visualize the radioactive particles that makes so much sense, and that is so hardcore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this rainy, this uranium has been punching this crystal for four billion years, and we can see the punch marks. <laughs> Speaking of light and radiation, another extremely popular form of dating is luminescence dating. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So this is not radiometric. This is a totally different thing, although it is related to radioactivity. Luminescence dating is measuring the energy building up within atoms. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, as we mentioned before, the stuff is ra- is radioactive on Earth all over the place. Which means if you are on Earth, you are exposed to radioactivity. While buried, minerals are exposed to this sort of background radiation. And what happens is that the electrons in an atom will absorb this energy from the surrounding radiation, and this will gradually, over time, cause electrons to break off from their normal position and get trapped within spaces within crystal structures. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. This happens at a regular rate. Just gradually, over time, at a known rate that we can measure, This these sort of trapped electrons, this, this buildup of energy caused by background radiation will just get bigger and bigger and bigger within these crystals, these minerals. If a mineral is exposed to heat or light, that energy can get released. But as long as it's not, that energy will continue to build up. So what we do is we get the the mineral, careful not to expose it to any light or heat until we get to the lab, 
and then blast it with light or heat, depending on what method we're using. Thermoluminescence dating uses heat. Optical stimulated luminescence uses light. We blast it. It releases a bunch of energy. We use our handy-dandy mass spectrometer to measure the amount of energy that was released. That tells us how long that mineral was buried underground. How long is it, has it been since it last was exposed to enough light or heat to release that energy? Yeah, how long since the last discharge? Yep. That, ooh, that, I love the, the, <laughs> that has a very, like, magical artifact feel to it of like, right. Right, <laughs> don't expose this to light. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. it's magic will be released. <laughs> That's the same as with the cosmogenic uh, nuclide, the mm-hmm. cosmogenic isotopes. Yeah, you can't let those see the light until you're ready to measure them because otherwise it'll just reset your clock. Basically. Absolutely. Oh, man. Uh, Weird. Luminescence dating was actually introduced in the 60s. This has been around for quite a while. Uh, a lot of the, like the argon, uh, potassium argon dating has been around since at least the 70s. A lot of these go back quite a ways. Luminescence dating is most commonly used for stuff in the thousands to uh, up to hundreds of thousands of years. So not for super old stuff, it is very commonly used when radiocarbon's not available. If there's not a good material to use for radiocarbon, luminescence dating will be used instead, or complementary. Yes. Uh, you'll use them together to get a date. Speaking of weird stuff that electrons do, there is another form of dating called electron spin resonance dating. <laughs> this is kind of similar. It has to do with how electrons react to background radiation, In certain materials, background radiation will gradually over time cause electrons to get, if you remember physics and chemistry, electrons get excited. Yes. So exposure to light or radiation of some kind causes them to jump between energy levels. This jumping will over time cause electrons to get caught in certain states. So in the last example, they were getting trapped within areas. This causes them to get stuck, basically, in an energy state that creates what is called a paramagnetic center. Uh, And I don't have a good description of what that means, but all you need to know is that it means these paramagnetic centers build up over time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, once again, we can measure the density of these centers, estimate how long this effect has been happening, and get a date for our material. Uh, Electron spin resonance is really good for things like tooth enamel and shell. Oh. This is another one that is often used uh, complementary to radiocarbon. So luminescence dating uh, and and spin resonance dating and radiocarbon are all really commonly used for archaeological stuff. Cool. So uh, these are terms you'll see much more often for, you know, early human stuff rather than like dinosaur stuff. Another one that's been around since the 70s. This has been used for quite a while. That's I love that that these dating methods just feel so sci-fi. When, like because so often you know when we portray archaeology, it's just brushes and right. You know, uh, uh, sketching and and everything and uh, uh, whips and whatnot. But like, <laughs> cool you know, hats. yeah, exactly. Fighting Nazis. <laughs> but like, you know, then when you said it's like, all right, so how are you going to figure out how old that is? It's like, well. We're going to see how radioactive and how much, how long it has yep. been out of the light yep. and how energetic it ex- electrons are. And it's like, sure, uh, yeah. once it gets back from the Enterprise, I, I'll <laughs> continue studying it, I guess. What, what the? 
And it's really, it's interesting. The thing that really stands out to me is that I am not a chemist and I am not a physicist, but most of this comes down to pretty basic Mm -hmm. atomic structure. I understand this because I know what a proton and a neutron and an electron are. This is science that we've been studying for, like we teach, we teach the fundamentals of this in high school. Yes, exactly. These are pretty common, well understood processes. It's just, uh, we have found these long reaching patterns in them under very specific scenarios that allow us to use that for dating. Uh, Here's another one that's used in archaeology that is super weird. I had not heard of this one. So far, we haven't talked about anything that was completely news to me. This one was news to me. This is called obsidian hydration dating. I've heard that term, but I... A lot of this has been new to me, just so everyone knows. I'm learning tons. <laughs> obsidian, so obsidian is a form of natural glass. Mm-hmm. It forms uh, during volcanic eruptions, things like that. Uh, it is glass. It's not the super hard bedrock that it is so often in video games. Yeah. For some reason. It's like, video games have decided. Not, ju- not just Minecraft. No, like, no. Tons of video games have been like, yeah, obsidian is super dense hard material the obsidian like, armor in skyrim is like the second best yeah. armor <laughs> there was an obsidian power in x-men destiny uh-huh. like, yeah no no it's glass yes it's no. literal glass it, it's sharp <laughs> if you break it right it's it's not res- <laughs> tough the surface of obsidian exposed to the air will gather water from the air oh so if a piece of obsidian is broken Say if it's being used to make a tool at an archaeological, well, at a, at a you know where people are mm-hmm. that are now we study in archaeology. <laughs> if you break it, that fresh surface starts to accumulate these water molecules, and it will gradually create a coat of a layer, a microscopic layer of water on the surface that we can measure with at the thing that I read describing this said with spectroscopy or microscopy literally just look at it and measure it the thickness of the band can tell us how old it is how long that water has been building up is it is it like binding with the obsidian i assume so i I think that it it is actually adhering yeah to there but i didn't look super deep into it so i don't have a molecular uh explanation for you not, not, not to, like, I wanted to ask because I didn't want to make this comparison uh, flippantly, but that this makes it like obsidian rust. Like that's like, yeah, kind of like that you, as you're exposed to the atmosphere, your surface is changing and we can, we can tell. Yeah. So if this has been sitting out, you know, in a cave or something since then, this is another one that's used for very young things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is also another one we've been doing since the sixties. Cool. One more from the realm of cool archeological techniques. Amino acid racemization. This one, I think I, we did actually mention in episode 12. Amino acids are compounds that we have inside of our bodies. They're organic compounds. They include things like lysine, famously. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They exist. Amino acid, the molecules, can exist in two forms called L and D, which are kind of kind of like isotopes, but <laughs> the multiple forms of this molecule now, this compound. In a living organism... Only the L form is maintained. Once an organism dies, they will start gradually flipping to D form until they uh, maintain a balance. Yeah. That half are L and half are D, and they'll they'll stabilize there. Yeah, just as once there's no system keeping them in one form, they just yes. will balance out to both. 
So as long as it hasn't hit that stability yet, we can measure the ratio and get an idea of how old, how long it's been since this organism died. Cool. So this is a this is a biomolecule study analysis that we can do to determine the age of an organic thing. This is another one. This goes back to the 80s. So a lot of these techniques have had many decades of refinement. Another category of absolute dating that includes some famous examples is what is often called incremental dating, which means you can literally count the years on something. Yep, yep. The by far the most famous example of this is dendrochronology, tree rings. Yes. Trees grow by adding a ring, a layer of wood every year. You can see the rings. You have a tree. You can count how old the tree is. A measurement like this, uh, you'll hear the terms fixed or floating. Mm -hmm. So a fixed date means that you can find, right, you can line the, the tree rings up with some other fully dated material. Yeah. And say that material... This ash layer dates to this exact date. Here in the tree, we can see a, the signature of when that eruption happened, and we can count the tree rings. So this happened at this date based on that other date. Or they can be floating dates, which means you can comp compare a bunch of different trees and line up their ages and events that occur, like droughts and stuff, recorded in the rings. And you might not know the exact age, but you can say this tree was cut down 23 years after this event, and that event occurred 42 years after this other tree was born. So you can create a little timeline that can relate all these different things to each other, even if you don't actually have it anchored in a proper date in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, by finding where the overlaps in tree lifespans yes. give you a constant timeline. You can also do incremental dating very famously with ice cores. Mm -hmm. So in places where, uh, like the Arctic, where we take cores through ice sheets, ice accumulates every winter. So you get the same thing. You get lines. In some places, we can count the years of ice cores back hundreds of thousands of years. Yeah. Just literally hundreds of thousands of lines that allow us to go back through these cores. And then if there's like an air bubble in there... We can go, all right, here is the atmospheric compo com composition. Like, here's what the atmosphere looked like 201,512 years ago, like right here in this layer. Uh, very similarly, there is uh, there are varves. Varves means annual, yearly uh, sediment accumulation. This happens a lot in lakes, where you'll actually be able to see in the mud a pattern of light layers, dark layers. Which is winter and summer. Yeah. In summer, there's more organics, so the sediment becomes darker. In winter, there's less, so it's lighter. So you can just count winter, summer, winter, summer, winter, summer, and count how much time is in between stuff. And here's one more on that list. That another one that was news to me. Lichenometry. What? Certain lichens grow at a regular yearly rate. And oh. we can use these to determine the age of things going back hundreds of years. Huh. That there will be a lichen on a surface. And if it's the right conditions and the right kind of lichens, researchers can measure how much growth has occurred. Like a coral or a tree. And go, yeah, this lichen first implanted on this rock 562 years ago or something. Whoa. Lichenometry. How about that? That's awesome. Isn't that cool? Huh. 
Now, speaking of things that Will will find awesome, one of the most popular dating methods that is very similar to this incremental dating, not not in the sense of a year-by-year basis, but in finding cycles and patterns in the geologic record, are astronomical dates. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. These are based on astronomical cycles. So this is a thing that we've talked about in the past on the podcast as well. The Earth's relationship to other things in the solar system, most typically the sun, are on cycles. Yep. So, for example, the tilt of the Earth's axis, right, 23.5 degrees or whatever it is today, that tilt changes back and forth over time on a regular cycle. The Earth's axis also wobbles like a top getting ready to fall over on a regular cycle. The shape of Earth's orbit around the sun changes from more circular to more elliptical on a regular cycle. These are sometimes called Milankovitch cycles. Mm -hmm. These cycles happen on scales of tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of years. And these cycles leave patterns in climate records in geological formations. So we can see if we follow climate proxies, right? Oxygen isotopes, carbon isotopes, things like that. The stable ones, not the radioactive ones. We can see these fluctuations back and forth that line up with these astronomical cycles. Mm -hmm. We also, when I say we, now we are not geologists, planetary scientists, (laughs) like astronomers will put together models to project this these patterns into the past to study the movement of the Earth, to study the Earth's orbit, and create a model that lets us say, all right, how far back in time would these patterns have been stable? Yes. Uh, the farther back you go, the less confident it becomes because of what I saw multiple papers refer to as the chaotic nature of the solar system. <laughs> <laughs> However, if we have high-resolution astronomy models and good geologic records showing us those patterns, showing us those cycles in climate tied to these astronomical changes, we can literally just count mm-hmm. and go, all right, that cycle is 400,000 years. So these cycles are 400, 800, 1200, 1600. This has been done. This will be done in one place, and then we can line it up with another site to sort of pick up from there. Mm-hmm. This astronomical time scale has been established now for almost the entire Cenozoic. <laughs> that the last 60 or so million years, there is a putting different uh, geologic sites together, continuous record of astronomical cycles in the geologic record going back to the end of the Cretaceous. Which is so fantastic. Not only is that an awesome way for us to have a fairly consistent and reliable dating method going back that far, Mm -hmm. but also it means that we are getting info on what the planet was doing. Not what was happening on the planet, what the planet was doing. What the Earth was up to. (laughs) What mood it was in at that time, how it was orbiting and spinning and like, that's so, that's so cool. Yes. (laughs) Now, as we are here compiling a list of the well-established, reliable methods of determining the ages of things in the past, we are now come full circle back to the part where we get to talk about relative dating. Yes. Relative dating allows us to put all these specific dates in relation to each other. 
we can't date every single rock and every single layer in the world. Some of them are just not good for dating. They don't have the right minerals or they're all messed up or whoever's working on it doesn't have the materials or the connections to get it dated. Relative dating is how we establish sequences of events. Relative dating is built upon what are called the principles of stratigraphy. These were introduced famously by Nicholas Steno. These include such laws as superposition, which says that layers higher up are younger than layers lower down because they build on top of each other. Things like original horizontality, that layers are laid down horizontally when sediments are accumulating or ash or whatever is accumulating. So you can line up layers across from each other. Lateral continuity, which means that if you have a, a horizontal layer and then someone cut a road through it or something, the two layers on either side of that cut that have the exact same composition are the same age. Mm -hmm. That's the same layer. Cross-cutting relationships, which means that if you have like an igneous intrusion into a sandstone bed, the sandstone came first mm -hmm. before the igneous thing happened. What are the orders of events that allow us to say this is older than this, this is younger than this. If we can get an absolute date on something, this ash layer is 3.2 million years old, the layers above that are younger than that, and the layers below it are older than that, and so on. Mm -hmm. As we put together the time scale, the geologic time scale, the, the full sequence of the history of the Earth, episode 12, from all these different materials, there are also certain patterns we see in this geologic succession that can help us to narrow down where we are on the time scale. The most famous of these is what's called biostratigraphy, that is, using fossils. Yep. Some fossils are specific to certain times or certain places, so if you find it, you know where you are. At the top of this discussion, I said, here's a T-Rex fossil. Great. Latest Cretaceous. That's where T-Rex comes from. The best fossils for this are fossils that are extremely common, fossilize really well, and were species that were only around for a very narrow time range. We call these index fossils. These can be broadly informative or specific. Ammonites are a great example of this. So ammonites are your spiral-shelled cephalopods, episode 16. If you find an ammonite, you're in the Mesozoic. Yep. That's when ammonites lived. Specific species of ammonites can help you narrow it down to extremely narrow ranges of geologic time. This species was here between 72.1 and 69.9, .9 or something like that. We've also got magnetostratigraphy. So the Earth's magnetic pole reverses over time. So you've got a positive or negative polarity. This is just the magnetic field. The Earth does not flip upside down, which nope. is a misconception that sometimes people come away with. <laughs> the, the flipping of the magnetic poles will be recorded in iron-rich minerals. So if we have a long sequence, we can see the changing back and forth of this magnetic signature. And if we have a geologic deposit with a couple of these flips, we can then line that up with the full sequence of magnetic reversals across the history of the Earth and figure out where do we fall in the timeline. Yes. Like, oh, this is these magnetic reversals that happened in the early Jurassic. Archaeologists often use a technique called tephrochronology, which is based on layers of ash. So in places with common volcanic eruptions... 
you will get stacks of ash igneous rock deposits, each one of which is from a different eruption. Right, right, right. And if you have a good enough sequence, you can trace a long series of eruptions. So then if you're studying a fossil over here and it's in between some ash layers, you can compare those, the composition of those layers to these other layers and go, these were these two eruptions. Here's where we are in the sequence. So there are all different ways to use relative dates using these continuous processes to say this lines up with this part of the timescale, even if we don't have a direct age for that, here's where we are in the timescale. And where we are in the timescale will tell us where we are in ages, mm -hmm. because we have a date at least nearby that from somewhere. This has been an incomplete list <laughs> of the techniques that we have to use in concert with each other to establish where we are on the geologic timescale when we find a particular site or fossil or geologic deposit. Now, this has all been very sort of, theor this is the theory of it. This is the, what are the techniques we can use? How do they work? Before we leave the topic, I'd like to give just a few actual examples. Yes. Some things that have been dated in the, how did it, how did it happen? What techniques were used? How does this actually happen in the real world? The first example I'll give is Lucy. Yeah. Lucy is the famous Australopithecus found at the site of Hadar in Ethiopia, one of the most famous of the, our lineage of human ancestors. When Lucy was first discovered, uh, there wasn't an absolute date for the site where Lucy came from, so the first age estimate was made with biostratigraphy. Mm -hmm. There were specifically multiple species of ancient pigs from this site that were common enough in this region that paleontologists knew their temporal ranges when this species showed up, when it went extinct, compared with this species and when it went extinct. The species of pigs found at the same site as Lucy had an overlap between 3.5 and 2.9 million years ago. Mm -hmm. That became the first estimate of the age for Lucy. Somewhere in this range is where Lucy came from. Apparently we know that Lucy and these pigs existed at the same time. Yes, and that could only have happened here in this range. Way later in the 1990s, scientists finally got a hold of ash samples good enough for dates. They had tried earlier, I think, and they couldn't get good samples. Uh, researchers were able to date. So Lucy has found an area with lots of layers of ash from successive volcanic eruptions. Researchers were able to get argon-argon dates from a couple of those layers. One layer several layers below Lucy that dated to, I think it was 3.22 million years ago, and one layer just one meter below Lucy that dated to 3.18 million years ago. So the official age for Lucy is a little bit less than 3.18 million years ago. Yes. Because Lucy is just above that dated layer of the site. This has also been correlated with things like magnetostratigraphy to sort of confirm this is in that part of the geologic timescale where we'd expect it to be if that date was correct. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This is actually a very similar example to a much more familiar example to us, the Gray Fossil Site. Yep. The Gray Fossil Site here in Tennessee, when it was first discovered and no one knew what age it was going to be, the first dates possible for Gray came from the animals found there. Specifically, the original ones were 
rhinos, which went extinct in North America at 4.5 million, and short-faced bears, which showed up at 7. So the original age estimate for Gray was somewhere between 7 and 4.5. These bears, these rhinos, only overlapped in that time period. Since that time, much more recently, research has been done looking at the small mammals from Gray. And again, comparing them with what's known from other fossil sites across North America to find here is our list of little rodents that we have. This is the range of time that these species overlapped. Mm -hmm. So nowadays, the official age estimate for Gray is 4.5 to 4.9 million. We have narrowed it down quite a bit. That's where that one stays. We don't actually have anything more specific than that as of yet. There has been some talk of maybe being able to find radioactive isotopes in, like, the sediment. Uh, I think specifically the cosmogenic isotopes, which would tell us when this pond sediment was buried. So in the future, we might be able to find some of those, which would help us to narrow down that age estimate even further. And, like, when you say recently... I, I used to say the previous age on tours. Oh, yeah. That paper was published in 2018. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that, that is a very recent update. <laughs> so gray is one where our, our estimate currently is still just a relative date. Mm-hmm. We don't actually have an absolute date on that site, which is why I say about 5 million years old, because we've got it narrowed down to a span of about half a million years but we're going to have to wait. That was also a very nice result because I remember back in the day before that, you would talk to the researchers there. I think I remember uh, Rachel Short making a comment about how the rhino at Gray looked more like the younger North American rhinos than the older ones. So I think I remember her saying, I bet this is at the younger end of this time range. So four and a half to seven is like probably closer to four and a half. And indeed, our latest uh, biostratigraphy studies have us at between 4.5 and 4.9. So multiple sources of information converging on similar uh, results. Absolutely. This is also why so often here on the podcast when we list a fossil group or, you know, event, we will give you a range because we're often dealing with dating somewhere in this and it might be between two absolute dates or something like that but it's we are dealing with these dating ranges of saying currently this is the range that we are pretty sure this fossil was at least buried within hopefully we will get to narrow that down further and further but sometimes you might not have a nice neat narrow range when you first start out that research just because you might not have discovered all the evidence or we might not have a way to determine with what we have available. Also, sometimes it'll be, you know, we'll say this dinosaur lived between yeah, uh, 82 and 72 million years. That doesn't necessarily mean they showed up at 82 mm-hmm. and went extinct at 72. Sometimes, sometimes it does. Sometimes we have enough of a record to say, yeah, they start here and end here. But other times it means the places this species has been found have been narrowed down to somewhere between those ages yeah so the gray fossil site did not form at 4.9 million and end at 4.5 it existed for probably like 10,000 years Mm -hmm. somewhere between those dates another very different example from the real world the kpg boundary (laughs) we actually talked about this on an episode not too long ago because someone was asking 
why the number changed. Yes. Why we used to say 65 and now we say 66. That was the patron question on episode 160, so go check that out for answers. The KPG boundary is the layer in the geologic record that marks the end of the Cretaceous and the beginning of the Paleogene. It is where the asteroid hit that ended the Age of Dinosaurs. The KPG boundary is apparent in many places all around the world, and it has been dated many, many times using many methods. So there are some uh, cases where dates have been taken on the tektites, that is, the debris from the impact, Mm -hmm. to date, when did this rock hit the Earth? Uh, The one example that I saw of that was an argon-argon date. In other cases, uh, researchers will get dates on the ash layers, because volcanic activity in some places, ash layers near the other signs of the boundary. So in many places, you can see the boundary either because there is a literal line where you get high iridium, that's the asteroid dust, or because the fossils change. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The last Cretaceous fossil, the index fossils, the last Cretaceous fossils end here. That's the end Cretaceous boundary. Often places you'll get dates on ash near those boundaries. So you can say, all right, well, the boundary is between this ash layer and this ash layer. That's where our dates come from. Uh, One study that I looked at, for example, had dates from multiple parts of the Hell Creek Formation and multiple layers both nearer and farther from the actual boundary in the geologic record. These were both argon and uranium dates. Cool. So again, multiple methods on multiple materials. In other places, there are some places where you can't get a radiometric date very close to the boundary, but especially in marine sediments, there are places where where the KPG boundary is, you also have those astronomical cycles. So in places like that, what researchers will sometimes be able to do is date this layer down here, and then count the astronomical cycles up to the KPG boundary. And all right, this date is this, there are this many layers. So the KPG boundary is that date minus this many of that astronomical cycle. Yeah. So 66 point whatever minus 400,000, 400,000, 400,000, there's our KPG boundary. So sometimes it's a date, and then counting the rest of the layers on the way. This is one of the reasons why the KPG boundary has been dated so precisely. The 66 point, I think it's 043 <laughs> million years ago. Because we have all these dates and all these places that help us to be extremely accurate in determining the age of that boundary. Yes. Because that, because that's the other nice thing and, and one of my favorite aspects of overlapping sources of support is that as often as they are going to support one another, they will often limit each other Mm -hmm. of like the bear and the rhino. It's like, if we just had the rhino, that would have given us a much larger range of time that this site could have been 4.5 million years or older. Yes. But there's also a bear here, which cuts us down to a smaller range. And if we find another animal that overlaps with them, that's likely going to cut us down because they're not all going to be starting and stopping at the same right. times. And with the KPG examples, yeah, we had this ash layer above the boundary. That dates to uh, 65 million years or something. Cool. The boundary's older than that. Mm-hmm. That is now we have established 
It has to be older than whatever that is. And we continue to zero in over time. One more example of a real-world dating project. This one I wanted to mention because, number one, I know Will will like it. I know a lot of our audience will like it. This is a very special one-of-a-kind date that was performed by a robot. <laughs> In 2013, the Curiosity rover dated samples from Mars. Actual dates. These were on a mudstone at Gale Crater, which is the place, the, the region that Curiosity uh, was and has been exploring. Yes. Uh, Curiosity is the rover that went up there about a decade ago. State-of-the-art equipment, Curiosity's been roving around doing science up there ever since. Had the cool jetpack landing equipment and all that stuff. (laughs) Previous research had estimated the age of Gale Crater using a technique called crater counting. Mm -hmm. This is a technique for determining the age of the surface of celestial bodies. The longer a surface has been exposed, the more craters it will have because their bombardment from space rocks is a constant in the solar system. So you can get an estimate. We can look at the surface of the moon and go, all right, this many craters means likely this much time that this has been exposed to rock impacts. Yes. That that this would be an an unusual amount for if it was younger and far too few if it was older. Yes. This is a form of absolute dating. Mm-hmm. This is a form of absolute dating that only works on places that aren't Earth. Yeah. <laughs> you can't do that on Earth. <laughs> well, I mean, you could, but our surface changes too much. Yes. This works on the moon and on Mars where you don't have changes to the surface. It's not a very precise form of dating compared to a lot of our others. There's a huge error bars. Mm-hmm. For example, crater counting technique had estimated Gale Crater to have formed sometime between 3.6 and 4.1 billion years ago. So that is a range of half a billion years, which is still pretty good for Mars. Oh, yeah. That's still, you know, that's very far away. For a thing we've never touched. Right. (laughs) I'm surprised we can date parts of it. In this study, Curiosity, the rover, drilled into this mudstone, collected powdered sediment, and on Mars performed potassium-argon dating. Yeah. It used the alpha particle X-ray spectrometer to analyze the composition of the rock in the area to measure the potassium. This is the old school way. Mm -hmm. Two Mm -hmm. samples, one for potassium, one for argon. And then another sample heated the sample in Curiosity's little oven to vaporize it, to release a gas, and then used the onboard spectrometer to measure the argon in the sample. This measurement also had huge error ranges because it's just really hard to get specific information when it's a robot on Mars. Well, yeah, it's, it's uh, a portable lab, not an actual. <laughs> right. Also, if I understood correctly, I think there was evidence of the sediment there having been mixed Ooh. over time. So it, this might not have been exactly one age. There may be a little bit of variation. So the final result that they got based on these potassium argon dates on Mars was that the surface there was at least between 4.2 and 3.6 billion years old, which is roughly the same time range as the crater counting method. Yeah. So we are starting to get consilience with our dates of the surface of Mars, which is so cool. And the other thing that's so uh, awesome about that to me is that, like, this is one of the very few times we can corroborate 
dating for another planet. Like, yeah. Like, we, the, we went there. Uh-huh. And cl- this has also been done on the moon, by the way. Yes. We have actually... Di- those, I'm pretty sure we took back. Yeah. Like, I think we have gone there, got rocks, brought them back, and then dated them in, like, good labs down here on Earth. No offense to Curiosity. Curiosity's no. doing its best. And, like, you know, I understand why it didn't do the Argon-Argon. It's hard to fit an uh, entire... A nuclear reactor. <laughs> <laughs> next time. The next rover uh, nuclear reactor up there. We're going to irradiate some potassium. The other thing that uh, Curiosity did as part of that same study was measured cosmogenic isotopes. Uh, specifically, this was argon, different argon. Neon, helium, and I think some others to get the surface exposure age. So how long since the last time these rocks were, when were these rocks buried Mm -hmm. on the surface? And again, there were a few different ages because we're measuring a few different places came to a surface exposure age of around 80 million years ago, which is not very long ago on Mars. Yeah. That these have only been buried for that long, which suggests that there is more erosion going on over time or more, burial of surface rocks going on over time than we might otherwise expect. Oh, yeah, those rocks on Mars the, they were They were buried. at the surface 80 million years ago. Yeah, they, they were at the surface in the Cretaceous. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> hey, T-Rex could have looked up at the sky. Well, not T-Rex at 80 million years. Uh, <laughs> the ancestors of T-Rex yes, could have looked yes. up at the sky. <laughs> and sp- the first crocodilians. Yes. It's croc month. Happy croc month, everyone. <laughs> the first crocodilians. The first crocodiles could have looked up at the sky through a high-powered telescope and seen these rocks on the surface. Yeah, which is, yeah, stuff's been happening on Mars to bury them since then. Yeah. Which is far more active than I think most of us would typically expect Mars to be. All of these examples demonstrate the ways that we use multiple forms of dating. So anytime, so when we get a rock, we find a rock, we find a fossil, we want to know how old it is. We have just this incredible list of options to choose from. Oftentimes we're using as many as we can. And as time goes on, we use more and more and it strengthens and it makes our dates more and more precise. Our techniques improve. Our understanding of the science behind it improves to the point where these days we are, when we say a date, when we pick up a fossil and we go, this fossil is 66.7 million years old. We are highly confident yes. that that number is at least very close to the actual age of that sample. And this brings us around to one of the points that I always like to, to make when we talk about geologic dates and the geologic timescale. This is one of those topics that can be hard to wrap your head around because the numbers we're talking about are ridiculous. Absolutely. Like million, million is that's a, that's a big number. That's what, and it is totally reasonable that people so often go, okay, but really? Yeah. How do you actually know? But actually 80 million years for real. And what strengthens our confidence in these dates that we receive, part of it again is our understanding of the science, the Mm -hmm. physics, the chemistry that's going on. These are things we understand extremely well. We were we were real good at nuclear physics half a century ago. Yeah. We're even better at it now. We understand these processes. But the other thing, the thing that 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 makes it so powerful is that rocks and fossils and ancient sediments on Earth have been measured and dated with dozens of different techniques that are different materials that happen in different conditions 
that change by different processes that are measured in different ways, dozens of different techniques performed by dozens of labs and hundreds of scientists on thousands and thousands of rocks and fossils, and all of them consistently give us the same answers. Yes. That time scale just keeps coming out. When people say, how do you know that these methods are reliable? One of the answers is, well, here's all the science behind it. Here's how we study it. But one of the answers that seems a little bit, I think, counterintuitive, we know these methods are reliable because they all keep giving us the same answer. Yeah. That's consilience. If you ask someone to measure the length of a bridge and one person does it with a ruler and one person does it with GPS coordinates and calculates the distance and another person gets on their bike and rides across the bridge and then calculates their speed and how long it took all these different methods, the odds that they're all going to be mistaken and still get the exact same answer, the more methods you use, the less and less likely that becomes. The more methods we use, the more times we use them, the stronger our confidence in these dates can be. These days, the dates we have put on the geologic timescale, that sequence of events and the ages along with them, we're refining them all the time. We're Mm -hmm. constantly tweaking and improving and adjusting. Like with the example of the KPG of going Mm -hmm. from 65 to 66. Yep. Going from 65.5 to 66. Yes. Constantly improving and refining. But on the whole, the dating of the geologic timescale, the history of the Earth, is one of the most strongly supported and well corroborated and most consilient. I don't know if that's a word. The (laughs) most consilized has some of the best support of any topic that we have studied on the planet. And it comes down to all these different methods and all these different efforts that have been put towards finding as many ways as possible to shore up that data. Yes. And this this is very much similar to when we talk about, you know, whenever we do a news and we say this is one study, mm-hmm. until we get more of that corroborated, we're not going to put a lot of weight. We're not going to just start throwing out. We're like, all right, well, you all heard it here. This animal is now this way. This research proves it. Until we have other research that look at it from other angles that retest what they did and find that consistently the evidence is pointing that way. This is this, this is the same kind of idea here that we are using different lines of evidence. But the refinement that you mentioned is also really important because I think it a lot of times it's very easy to get the idea that we dated a thing and then we went, all right, and done. Mm-hmm. But we're going to find rocks from that age again somewhere and have to date it those rocks for the first time again. And every time we do the dating process, it's retesting our ways we do it. It's refining the techniques we use. It's testing out the scenarios in which there could be variants or or errors added to our results. And so every time we do it, it's getting retested. Our techniques are getting retested. The date for that layer is getting retested. The time scale and timeline that we have determined is getting retested and redetermined Mm -hmm. so it is not a static thing that we've learned how to date dated it and now have the timeline it is constantly being reanalyzed because we have to is if i find a new fossil site that seems like it's somewhere in the cretaceous i have to date it and when i date it i'm going to be 
dating that site for the first time. Mm -hmm. And when it comes out to similar numbers of other sites, it's because I'm using a technique and showing that it still is consistently or I'm finding out what quirks this site might have and what that might need us might, might mean we need to adjust or examine about this technique. Yep. And through all this study and all these techniques, the geologic timescale remains stable. This topic is fascinating. Oh, it's so cool. I love talking about how we date stuff. It's super cool because it has both, it has the thing of being foundational science. Mm -hmm. Like this underpins so much of geology, but also we get to talk about physics and we get to talk about nuclear physics this episode. How often does that happen on the podcast? I love it. But also because it's such a big topic and it's such an important topic. Like I said at the top, this is one of those episodes that is relevant to every episode of the podcast that we've ever done. Yes. This is how, this is where those dates come from. This is how we get that information. Big thanks to all of the listeners who requested this topic. I was utterly delighted to jump into this uh, topic. As always, there is a blog post with links and information for those who want to dive deeper. There's a link in the episode description. Also, if you're on Patreon, there'll be director's notes where you can hear me talk about how delighted I was to talk about this episode. Before we officially wrap everything up, there is one thing left to do. We have a patron question. Every episode, we like to end off by answering a question submitted by one of our patrons right here on the podcast. Uh, this is another one of those where we fa we have a appropriately themed patron question. Will? Our appropriately themed question comes from Jackie, who says, We know the age of the surface of the Earth everywhere, but how well do we know what ages are preserved deeper below the surface, and how do we know? That is an excellent question. So... What a great episode to talk about this question. <laughs> you can look at like geologic maps of states, countries, whatever, and see, yeah, here is what all the rocks are. Here is what the ages are, at least in the broad strokes. Yes. Every now and then there's like a little fissure fill that's got something different in it. And it's easy to see that we, well, yeah, we date them mm -hmm. on the surface. We also have a really good understanding of the dates of the ages of rocks and formations under the surface. And that's because we have a lot of ways to examine rocks that are deeper down. In some places, we're fortunate enough that they're exposed. Yes. So like canyons or you know, highway cuts where we can actually see the layers that go deeper down and then determine what age that is using the fossils or using a specific dating technique or something like that. Other times, we can use those principles of stratigraphy to say, all right, this layer is exposed on this side of the hill and it's exposed on this side of the hill. This probably continues throughout this hill. So we know that this is the age of the rocks underneath this hill or this mountain or whatever. We're also able to take drill cores. So in many places we drill down into the rocks. This has been done a lot in ocean sediments. Yes. So we can drill into ocean sediments. There are other techniques we use to image under the surface. So density surveys, things like that. Some of these techniques use kind of like ground penetrating radar. It's it's a thing we're doing at the surface to then detect what's below. A lot of our subsurface imaging uses seismic waves. Yeah. But earthquakes, we can detect the density or composition or structure of things, layers, rock deposits deep below the surface to get a sense for what kinds of rocks might be down there. So we can take a drill core and pull it up and just go, all right, that, that came from half a mile below the surface, let's date it. 
Or we can get a sense for the general types of rocks that are down there. There are some cool things where, like, subsurface imaging like that has been... That's how we found the KPG crater. Yep, yep. Is that it is a pattern in the deposit. It is a a crater-shaped pattern in the rocks deep below the surface in the Yucatan. And then since then, we have drilled into those rocks and pulled up the KPG boundary from the crater and then been able to date that. So we actually have a bunch of techniques for getting under the surface to determine, uh, again, the broad ages of what is below the surface uh, of our planet. Absolutely. And eventually we'll do it on Mars. (laughs) It'd be so cool. (laughs) Thank you for that question, Jackie. Thank you, everybody, for your requests, for your patronage, if you are a patron. Thank you for listening. This has been a big episode, Mm -hmm. uh, but a really important topic, and I love it so much. This episode works very nicely, I think, as a companion piece to episode 12. So if you're interested in the broader picture of the geologic timescale, go check out episode 12. And thank you for joining us for this deep dive into the deep history of, how, of our dating of uh, our planet and uh, other planets sometimes. It's, it's, such a, it's such a fun topic. I like that it's so systematic that you, just, you can just go down the list of what can we use to date this and just everything you can use you just helps you to narrow down it's oh it's just it's very satisfying yeah it's oh, i saw a video it's of very a, mathematical yes and it, it it's it's satisfying in the way that math is nice yes so yes there are patterns this all makes sense well I, I saw a video of a person doing that with a, a globe of earth and saying all right when was this globe made this country is named this it was only named that between these decades right these countries are currently two countries. Yes. And they were only split during these decades. So currently, we, and they just did that until they had it narrowed down to, I think, one or two years. <laughs> of like, this globe was manufactured sometime in these two years. If it's if it's accurate to the time it was made, that's how old it is. And it, it was a very fun to just watch his process. That's mm-hmm. how it feels with this. That's is just exactly what we're doing. Just watching and getting to see the, all right, we have these fossils. Cool. What, what layers? Cool. What? Things, what, what, yep. radiometric. What's, what's the nearest yeah. radiometric dates we have? Cool. Cool. That and just and that. You, keep at, you keep stacking it, and then hopefully if you have enough, you end up with a nice, crisp little range. Oh, awesome. Absolutely. Like I said, hop down to the episode description for more stuff. The link to our blog is in there. Also, it's Croc Month. Woohoo! Happy Croc Month, everybody. We've got links down in the episode description to our social media. Discord, the Croc channels are up. Our Patreon, where we have our special summer Crocs and Snakes tier, where if you subscribe at that level, you are contributing to donations to Croc and Snake Research and Conservation. Please consider doing so. Also, as we said at the top of the episode, happy Pride Month, everybody. Happy Pride Month. It's June. Crocs and Pride. It is celebrating about the same time. <laughs> uh, just cram all the awesome things in one month. <laughs> <laughs> and... Because it is Croc Month, next episode, episode 168, as we have teased, will be a Crocs episode. Yes. For the first time since 2017, (laughs) a Crocs episode. I wonder what exact topic it might be. Stay tuned. You know when to hear it, because we release episodes every fortnight. That is one of those patterns that if you know when when an episode came out, you can just count fortnights. Well, it, it's also <laughs> a fun little comparison because like, we release episodes every fortnight. Knowing what episode we're up to, you can tell when the podcast started. Yep. I've done this before. Mm-hmm. Well, like, no, episode 100 will come out yes. 
in November of this year. Like, yeah, that's, uh, yep, we can do that because oh, we man. have a pattern. Now I want someone to listen to one of our side episodes and try to date it based on, like, what we... Oh, uh, what we're talking yeah. about? Yeah. Yeah. How close can you get? <laughs> <laughs> Let us know the results of your study. How diagnostic are our discussions <laughs> for determining the age? Well, it's, it's the quality of the microphones. Yes, yeah. And it's references to topical events. Yeah, are we in the same place or two places? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Check it out. Let us know uh, what you come up with. Uh, listeners, as always, if you enjoyed this, if there's more you want to hear about, if you have additional questions, come find us. Comment on the social medias. Comment on the YouTube thing, comment on the blog, join us in the Discord, send us an email, join us on Patreon, all sorts of ways to get in touch with us. We hope you have enjoyed this episode. I have enjoyed the heck out of this episode. It's been an awesome one. We will happily return to these topics if we get more requests for doing them. I am done talking. (laughs) It has been a lot. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.